Hey, deserving listeners, let me tell you a story about someone who has narcissistic personality disorder. This is a profile of a semi-real person, and I've changed a number of the details to mask their identity. If this person were to hear this, they would not even recognize themselves. So, uh, so that's you know that's the common practice for us therapists. So, but you know, I'm describing. I'm describing actual events, if that makes any sense. Okay. So, he grew up in an alcoholic family. His childhood was very rough. His parents were too busy or too distracted to give him any tension or any love. So, he turned to sports and grades as a way to gain attention from other people, including his family. But he never really felt good about himself. In fact, deep down... He had extremely low self-esteem, like really, really low self-esteem, like deep, deep shame. He hated himself, but he was good at sports and he knew how to get people to like him. So he distracted himself with, he distracted himself with sports and, and also by being entertaining to other people. He was the clown. He was the good boy. But when he was home, he was easily hurt and he was often very moody and very distant and if someone in his family made fun of him he really was hurt easily and he would think about it day and night and he would react very badly when people teased him and he spent a lot of energy making sure that no one could tease him so he made sure that his hair was perfect that his outfits that his outfits were just right And he also adapted by leaning into the ridicule at times somewhat. So he started wearing uh, weird outfits. That way, if someone made fun of him, he knew that his fashion sense was just better than the average person. He had developed a sense of superiority in other areas, too. In sports, he was often the best player, and he took a lot of pride in that. But at home, he didn't get a lot of pride, and he mostly felt invisible. He felt the constant tension between his parents. They would get into violent arguments sometimes. And sometimes his father would disappear for several days without any explanation. So after a while, he decided he would just stay in his room most of the time. Sometimes he would console his mother as she drank herself to sleep at night. As a teenager, he eventually got a girlfriend and they fell madly in love. They talked about their love as if their love was the only love that ever existed. They were both really popular at school, and they both really loved to be on stage. But as with most high school romances, their relationship ended in a a very dramatic fashion. One night she got drunk at a party, and she got together with his best friend, and he was devastated, and he broke up with her. He was deeply humiliated. He felt completely blindsided by this. He it didn't make any sense to him. It was just mind-boggling. At first, he didn't even believe it happened, but after a while, it finally sunk in. And yeah, he just felt humiliated and upset, and he couldn't sleep at night. His mind was racing. He couldn't stop thinking about her. Sometimes in the middle of the night, he would descend into panic and fear, and he would cope with this by jogging around the neighborhood, as a way of distracting himself from his from his terrifying fear. 
he felt untethered to the world. He felt like he wasn't really connected to his life anymore. He went to Instagram and posted a, a number of pictures that related to his deep pain and his despair and his anger at his ex-girlfriend. And people responded online to him. And that gave him some consolation. But it was short-lived. So he decided that he would uh, start writing about her. And he made a blog. And he went into depth about everything that she had done to him. And everything that, everything that was wrong about her. And he posted it. And eventually she got, to, she got in touch with him and told him to take it down or else she was going to call the school or something. And he, he said, okay, fine. But the damage was already done. It was already out there and everyone had read the blog. He also found a YouTube video that talked about mindfulness and Buddhism. And these ideas really appealed to him. He learned that he could better, he, he, he learned that he could feel better if he detached from his expectations and he also learned that most people are slaves to their attachments. That's what the YouTube video was telling him. And he learned that if he detaches from his attachments, he would be able to overcome his dependence on other people. And this really appealed to him. But really, any answer appealed to him because he was suffering so much. Again, it wasn't just like depression. It was being untethered, un disconnected, you know, just, just completely in despair. His mind would bounce from feeling humiliated to feeling despair and loneliness, deep loneliness, to feeling extreme rage, like he wanted to burn the school down, to feeling numb, to feeling desperate. He found that it helped to tell himself that he didn't need anyone. It helped if he believed that he could survive on his own. And it helped if he put his energy into things that he was good at, like sports and school and being the good kid, being the charming one. He joined the school newspaper and started publishing articles about politics and about how women have personality problems. Later in college, he still felt lonely and ruminated on moments of social anxiety. After going to a party, he would ruminate about the various things that he said, and he promised himself that he would work on those things so that he didn't make a fool out of himself in the future. He found that alcohol helped. And soon he was drinking almost every night. And it really gave him something to do. It numbed the pain, and it gave him an excuse to go out and be with friends again. He was, often, he was often the life of the party. He had a loud voice, and he became gregarious when he drank alcohol. He learned how to do magic tricks and became pretty good at it. And he started performing at birthday parties. He had many friends, but none of them were very close. He went to parties and bars and clubs and met a lot of women. He was good at getting women to like him. He knew that about himself. He took a lot of pride in be, being able to get them to like him and, you know, maybe have sex. He wasn't mean to them, but he also wasn't particularly respectful and particularly nice. He definitely didn't um, settle down with any of them. His friends saw him as a ladies' man. His friends also saw him as being super talented and as someone who knew a lot of interesting people and a lot of interesting things. But they also saw him as someone who was arrogant and thought highly of himself. In fact, they had a nickname for him. They called him the Donald, as in Donald Trump, referring to his arrogance. In his friend group, he was a risk taker. He started shoplifting. First it was food, then clothes, and eventually he was stealing jewelry and other expensive things. He did it for the thrill, 
and to show off and to have nice things to wear. And he would sometimes tell his friends, those rich people don't deserve those things. That's why I steal from them. Sometimes he would get really angry at one of his friends for being stupid or immature or making him look bad. He was highly judgmental of other people. He, he often saw the flaws in other people and, and just was really aggravated by it. And he told all of his friends about, you know, this person or that person and how this person had that flaw and that person had that flaw. And his friends often agreed with him. They, they saw him as someone who could really read people. These flaws really aggravated him. It made him very angry. Occasionally, he would get really drunk and express his deep anger about other people. And other times, he would get really drunk and express his deep love and attachment uh, for some of the women that he was dating. But when he woke up the next day, he wouldn't feel the same way. He wouldn't feel anger and he wouldn't feel deep love. He just didn't feel anything. And sober-minded, he thought, him, he thought of himself as someone who didn't need relationship. He saw dependency as being weak. That wasn't for him. Women often told him that he was really hard to figure out. And he seemed to attract women who were highly emotional and sometimes unstable. And he developed a viewpoint that women were generally overly emotional and generally inferior. He wouldn't say inferior, but that's basically what he felt. And he also found that some women women were just psycho. It had been a long time since he'd seen his family. His family was, you know, in the past. They were sources of pain for him, so he'd, he'd rather just avoid them. So he moved across the country to a new city early in his adulthood. And for his career, he had big aspirations. He wanted to be the best trial lawyer in the world. He had seen lawyers on TV and in movies, and he just thought that looks like a great job. So he went to law school, and he studied really hard, like really hard. His entire life was law school. It was, it's all he did. He spent all his time on campus, and he, he, he met with his professors, and he developed a lot of mentor relationships with his professors, particularly the director of the program. He also spent a lot of time in the gym. He really didn't want to gain weight like some of his friends did in college. One of his friends got an internship at a prestigious law firm, and he was really jealous of his friend, but he didn't admit it. And internally, he compared himself to his friend. He thought, I'm a better student than he is. Why does he get the internship and not me? And he was really resentful of it. And he eventually began to talk shit about this friend at school. And he, his friends could tell that he was envious of the other guy. So, but he didn't know that they knew. And he started working really hard and using his charm to network better. He really wanted that internship at that firm. And everything he did was focused on that goal. People would ask him to go out, and he'd say, nope, got to study. And, um, you know, he would meet a woman at a club, and she would say, hey, let's hang out. And he'd say, nope, I got I to gotta study, sorry. You know, I, I have more important things to do. And eventually he got the internship, and he was elated genuine happiness and his friends saw him happy and and thought wow i'm so happy that he's happy and he took everyone out to dinner at an expensive restaurant very lavish uh, to celebrate getting the internship but after a few weeks at the internship he found that the position was not as great as he thought it would be 
The lawyers at the firms treated him like he was a peon, and he realized that he was just a lackey. And there were rumors among the interns that the firm rarely promoted interns to higher positions. So he felt demoralized, and he just felt shattered, and he fell into despair. Everything he did was focused on getting that internship, and now that he had it, he, he, it was you know really um, a disappointment. And he was confused. He didn't know what to do. He was also kind of confused with his feelings. He thought, why, you know, why do I feel so upset? And, and why do I feel so untethered from the earth? He felt as though he had been wasting his entire career, maybe his entire life. In an instant, he hated law school and he hated the idea of being a lawyer. He wondered why he ever wanted to be a lawyer. He thought to himself, lawyers are selfish. They're all self-centered dildos. He didn't know what to do. And he was desperate, so he went to therapy for the first time. And when the therapist asked him what he wanted to get out of therapy, he said, I don't know, you're the doctor, you tell me. The therapist told him that it was up to him to figure out what he wanted from therapy. And that was not the therapist's job to you know, tell a client what they should be in therapy for. He didn't really like that answer, and he got through that first session, but he never went back. He concluded that therapy was for, you know, dependent chumps. And instead, he decided he would go through grad school and start his own firm. This was the answer. That would show the rest of them. It would be his firm. He would, he would be in control. He wouldn't be dependent on anyone for anything, to give him anything. And that felt good to him. He had a vision to strive for. And he would often visualize this vision. He fantasized about what he was going to call his firm, what his office would look like, how many employees he would have. And at night, before falling asleep, he would daydream about being interviewed about how successful his law firm was, like in some lawyer magazine or something. He also fantasized about someone writing a biography about his life and about how he would explain this chapter of his life and how he had hit bottom at this internship. And that's when he realized that he needed to make his own firm and that was the beginning of a long, successful career. But honestly, he didn't know what else to do with his career. Um, you know, uh, he, he didn't really like being a lawyer anymore. He wasn't as excited about it. You know, originally he was very excited about it. He was very into it and loved the lifestyle. But now that he had this disappointment, it's really soured the, the profession for him. And, and he, although he really wanted to have his own firm, he, he wasn't really into it anymore. And at school, he started cutting corners, like not paying attention to class and not reading the reading assignments that were assigned in class. He, he did just enough to get by. He saw many of his classes as really just being beneath him. He thought that his professors were going too slow or that his classmates were all idiots. Eventually, he graduated and started working toward his goal of running his own firm. And he met a woman. And she was really, really nice. She wasn't demanding like some of the other women he dated. She had a similar background to him. Her parents were also alcoholics, and they bonded over that. Eventually, they got married, and they had kids, and they seemed to be the perfect couple. They had a nice house and a good neighborhood. Their Instagram pictures were all beautiful, but really, they fought a lot. They fought about the house. They fought about money. They fought about how many kids they were going to have. They, they fought about many things. But in the end, they thought their marriage was fine. 
And in between the fighting, they tended to live fairly independent of each other, you know, for, for reasons that they were, they both consider themselves to be very independent. And also it helped to alleviate the fighting. Each of them were really focusing on their careers. They were both really good at their jobs and they were, they were both climbing the ladders of their careers, respective careers. She worked in a different industry and they both started drinking a lot, which sometimes led to some really ugly fights. He often criticized her for many things. He told her that she spent too much time at work and that her political opinions were misguided, completely misguided. He often commented on the way that she dressed. He would tell her that her outfits were either, you know, too slutty or, you know, too conservative. He told her that she wasn't ambitious enough at her work and that she wasn't very good with money. He criticized even the way that she argued about things, saying that she didn't really know how to stand up for herself. He made her feel little and stupid and incompetent. So they spent a lot of time apart. They got pregnant, but he wasn't that interested in parenting. It was Being a parent was mostly her idea. So he left all that to his wife for the most part, and he concentrated on his career. And he became increasingly successful in his law practice. And his wife realized that if she wanted him to be in a good mood, she would have to frequently appreciate how much money he was making, even though she didn't really care. He started flirting with women at work, and he occasionally had an affair. When his friends asked him why he was having the affairs, he said that his wife was not his soulmate and that he was looking for real love. He eventually had his own firm, like I said, which initially made him feel on top of the world. He, you know, finally was in control. He had finally realized his goal and he was elated. And he took everyone out to an expensive restaurant to celebrate his success. But later he realized that he was just another firm among many and there wasn't really anything special about his firm and it was hard to get clients. And again, he fell into a deep, deep despair. Everything he had done over the past number of years was focused on having his own firm. And now that he had finally achieved his goal, he didn't really care about it anymore. He thought about going to therapy, but he decided against it. He knew he could get through this by detaching from his attachments. He remembered that YouTube video. He was good at that. He was good at detaching. He was also better than, he considered himself better than most people in that he could detach. You know, he didn't, he wasn't bogged down by all those kinds of things. And he got through that time. But, you know, he drank a lot and, you know, maybe he started to use some cocaine. He started hiring a lot of employees and his employees realized that he would he could be really nice sometimes, but he could also be really mean sometimes. And sometimes he was in a really bad mood. He always knew what kind of mood he was in. And they everyone learned to gauge his mood for self-preservation. He also made a lot of promises to to his employees, telling them that if they did a really good job and if they were loyal to his firm, he would reward them very, very, very well. He really knew how to incentivize things. But a lot of the promises that he made were impossible for him to follow through on. 
For example, he couldn't make everyone, you know, a partner, for example. And he was often very stressed with his work. When things weren't going well, he was extremely stressed about it. And when things were um, going, so, so when things were going well, he was stressed about maintaining it. When things were not going well, he was very stressed about the possibility of failure. It really dogged him day and night. He would also check his net worth often to see how he was doing. He would check his portfolio. He always knew exactly how much he was worth, even though he really didn't have any need for the money. I mean, he had everything he needed, and um, he could retire at that point if he wanted to. When his employees would do something wrong, he would be livid, livid. He would immediately call them and tell them to meet him in his office. He called these meetings come-to-Jesus meetings in which he calmly described what the employees did wrong. He was very adept at these meetings. He wouldn't, he wouldn't exhibit his anger. He's very calm. He knew to remain very still and to have a low voice. But his words communicated everything. And his employees would be extremely intimidated by these meetings. His employees would sometimes cry in these meetings. He would calmly tell them that they needed to learn from their mistakes and he would propose ideas about why they made the mistake. Perhaps they lacked willpower. Maybe they didn't have good enough character. Maybe they needed to go back to school. Maybe they needed him to mentor them. Some employees quit because they felt belittled by him. But many stayed because they saw him as a genius. And they learned to accept his occasional criticism and the way he would belittle other people. Plus, he knew so many important people. They needed to stay close to him because he could make or break their career. And the one that stayed were the ones who were loyal to the firm. And he considered this very important. Once he found out that once he found out that an employee was moonlighting at a rival firm and he went ballistic on her. He told her she she had a choice. She could either quit this other firm or he would destroy her career. She was terrified of him. She had no idea that he would be that upset about it. And she gave in to his demands, even though she didn't really have to. He started painting as a hobby. He got really into it. And people were really impressed that he could take up painting so late in life. He eventually got his paintings into an art gallery downtown, and he was really proud of this. And at the opening night, he pressured the CFO of his firm to buy some of his art. And he put up a few of his, few of his paintings in the lobby of his firm. One of his clients wrote a negative review about his law firm online. He did not react well to this. He called everyone into his office, and everyone knew it was going to be a big deal because they knew his personality. They knew it wasn't going to go over well. And he demanded that everyone figure out how to deal with this crisis. And although a lot of the other people didn't consider it a crisis because, you know, one bad review isn't that big of a deal, they knew that they couldn't say that because he would bite their head off. So they proposed a lot of ideas, and one employee suggested that they sue the client, this former client, for libel. He loved that idea and told them to run with it, and he dedicated a lot of resources to suing that person for libel. At home, there was still a lot of distance and occasional conflict. He spent a lot of time in the garage. He drank and or smoked pot, and he worked on his paintings. 
He didn't really have a particular style in his paintings. He tended to mimic other styles of other painters. But he would never admit that. He would claim that he, he, he had his own style and that they, these paintings just emerged from his soul. When people asked him what his paintings met, meant, he never really knew what to say, so he would often just make something up. He would mimic that, too. He would watch YouTube videos of other artists talking about what their pieces meant, and he would develop a kind of repertoire of responses. But none of them really resonated with him. In fact, he thought everyone was just being a big phony. He thought that all artists and all creative people were just at making shit up. His, his wife learned to be a buffer between him and the kids. She often felt like he was just one of the children instead of having a partner in parenting. She often felt like he was trying to compete with the other children for her attention. And whenever he was talking to the children, she made sure she was always right there to mediate because he often said things that were not good, you know. When she tried to talk with him about it, he would say that she was too passive as a parent or too liberal as a parent. But over time, he learned that it was just best to leave the parenting to her. I mean, that's woman's work anyway. He had more important things to do. Eventually, after a number of years, his wife met another man at work, and they had a, an affair, and they fell in love. Without warning, because she knew that if she talked with him about it, he would go ballistic. So she spent a number of months planning to leave him. And she uh, one day served him the divorce papers and moved out with her family. She knew that she, she was afraid that he might, I, I don't know what. Well, she moved out and he was shocked and he was so angry. I mean, he thought the marriage was perfect. Again, as in other moments in, of crisis in his life, he felt completely untethered. He was in complete despair, not depression. Depression is different. Depression is kind of like an acceptance for, for what's happening and you're sad about it. That's not what he felt. What he felt was distress and despair and emptiness. And again, being untethered, like unconnect, disconnected, not kind of like he wasn't real anymore. He was, he was invisible again. He felt deep humiliation and he worried about what um, other people would think about him, that his wife would leave him because he had painted this world of, perfection. People thought his, his life was perfect, the perfect mansion on the hill, the perfect law firm, the perfect dress, the most beautiful wife, the most beautiful kids. And now all of that was coming, you know, it was shattered. And again, he would pace around at night in utter panic. He didn't want her to leave him. He didn't want to be humiliated. He didn't want to be alone. And he desperately tried to get her back. He was willing to give up everything to get her back. He even went to therapy again, and this time he really opened up. In therapy with his therapist, he talked about his life, and he often blamed his wife for their past conflicts. And he sometimes insinuated that the therapist didn't really know how to help him. And the therapist thought this guy was really a piece of work. But she was intimidated by him, so she didn't really confront him on a lot of things, and she let him talk a lot. His friends told him to just, you know, just forget your ex-wife and find a new life. But he really couldn't imagine a life without her. So he begged his wife to come back, and he begged his wife to tell him what he needed to do to get her back. He told her about all the work he was doing in therapy. 
and that he realized how much he had hurt her over the years. He completely handed himself over to her. She was surprised to see him this way. She thought he didn't really care about her. But now he was showing that he really did care, which was surprising to her. Her friends told her to move on, forget about him. But there was still something that drew her back to him. He, he was sort of a magnetic person. And so she ended the affair and moved back in with her husband. And soon after that, he ended therapy and their relationship turned to normal. And the story goes on from there. So that's one possible profile of someone with narcissistic personality disorder. There are many different profiles. That's, that's one of probably a hundred that I could come up with. But I think it fits a, you know, a very common profile of someone with narcissistic personality. And, and it's a typical one, I think, for my region of the world. And on the Internet, uh, there are different stories. There are often descriptions that don't really encapsulate what I understand to be narcissistic personality disorder. And as a result of all these really poor descriptions, because I'm guessing as you're listening to me describe this, you're like, huh, that isn't exactly what I thought narcissistic personality disorder was, unless you actually know, because you might actually know someone like this and know that they have, you know, that personality disorder. Um, but for people who don't really know, you might think like, well, that's not what I thought narcissistic personality disorder. Because if you, if you look on the internet, what you think narcissistic personality disorder is, is a girl who likes to take a lot of selfies. Because half of the articles, that's the picture they have. They have a lot of girls with taking pictures, you know, a lot of selfie things. <laughs> or they'll have like these super extreme cases like Charles Manson or something. But the fact is, is that people with narcissistic personality disorder are regular people. And um, you know, they don't end up in prison for mass murder, <laughs> the vast, vast majority of them. Um, as I mentioned before in my other episode on narcissistic personality, research has found that lay people have a really tough time identifying um, any personality disorder, let alone uh, narcissistic personality. In fact, research has shown that among the personality disorders, they have lay people have the hardest time with narcissistic personality disorder. And research has even found that um, clinicians often fail to recognize it as well. It's, it's a really difficult thing to understand. And yet, it's one of the most commonly dis described and discussed personality disorders on the Internet. But I have only come to understand it after years and years, you know, 20 plus years of studying it, experiencing it, reflecting on it, treating it, talking about it. And, and I still have a hard time really grasping it. It's a tough, you know, you have to understand personality and development and culture and um, normal ranges of narcissism. It's a very hard thing. And it's frustrating to see so much bad information on the internet. Um, and frankly, in a lot of training programs, I mean, there are people who graduate from training programs who probably have talked about narcissistic personality disorder like kind of in one class, which, you know, is not unusual given the amount of topics that a training program has to hit on. But honestly, I, I think that training programs should spend a lot more time on personality disorders because I would guess that most clinicians have a, have a client with narcissistic personality disorder at least a few times a year, if not way more often than that. 
but they often don't know it because they don't know how to recognize it. And even, even if they do know how to recognize it, they don't know how to treat it. I mean, I've heard experienced clinicians announce, like declaratively, that it's impossible to treat someone with narcissistic personality disorder, which just isn't true. I mean, it's not easy, but it's definitely not impossible. I mean, if you don't want to treat them, that's fine. That's just your preference. Or if you don't feel like you're competent to treat them, then that's also fine. No, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But that's not evidence that it's impossible to treat the disorder. So anyway, that's that's my little rant on that. But um, having said that, there are people out there that I fully respect. Otto Kernberg still with us. Uh, wonderful genius in uh, where I get um, really a lot of my conceptualization and understanding of narcissism from. Um, anyway, so this is part two of my deep dive into narcissistic personality disorder. Um, I just finished part one and that was over five hours long. Uh, I, and even, and even though it's five hours long, I recorded those five hours over the span of like a week because I had to write and think and record and write and, you know, I, I couldn't just ramble for five hours. You know, I had to. So, so, uh, this is these, these two episodes on narcissistic person, these two deep, one deep dive spread out over two, two episodes and each one I'm guessing are going to be, you know, five hours long. The first one is definitely five hours. I'm guessing this, this part's going to be maybe even more. I don't know. It just takes a really long time to describe narcissism. And I've been prepping for this topic for many years. So I have a lot of things to say, and there's a lot of things in the media worth commenting on. You know, does Kanye West have have narcissistic personality disorder? Does Donald Trump? This kind of stuff. And um, you know, how do you treat it? What's the history? What did Freud say about it? You know, um, what's the difference between histrionic and narcissistic and borderline and antisocial and complex PTSD? Like, there's just so many different things to think about. And since I'm fairly since I'm a fairly comprehensive podcaster, I can't help but to just talk and talk and talk <laughs> and, and have my, you know, notes that um, are, my notes are almost a hundred pages long uh, for this episode. So anyway, welcome to the psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast. So if you're listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast yet, this episode will end before the rest of the content goes on. If you want to hear the full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. When you become a patron, you get access to hundreds of deep dives and patron-exclusive episodes uh, on various topics. I've done other episodes on histrionic, on antisocial, borderline, and, and a lot of other topics. And... Also, when you become a patron, you should know that you don't have to listen to most of the commercials. And also remember that a portion of your pledge goes towards various charities that we support. Okay, welcome to the Patron Zone patrons. Thanks for becoming a patron. Super cool of you. You're the bomb. You're the bomb. Who says that anymore? Not me. Uh, except for me. I just said that. Um, so let's review the elements of narcissistic personality disorder. The, I, I originally had, I don't know, like 20 or something, but I, I've reduced it to 17. I've sort of reordered them to, to kind of make them in order of, I don't know, 
a strength or something. So the elements of narcissistic personality disorder are uh, compensatory grandiosity. That's a, a key one in which there's, uh, a, a, you know, they, people with narcissistic personality disorder will prop up this false sense of their self that is uh, delusionally awesome uh, or unrealistically awesome, um, inaccurately awesome, or they build a life in which they're seen as awesome because they need to compensate for deep feelings of inferiority and emptiness and despair. And then number two is a lack of self. Be, you know, because they were not raised well enough at an early age, they don't really know who they are and they don't have the ability to soothe themselves on the inside. And so they have a an attack on their self-esteem and their self-worth. They, they can't turn to inner resources to make themselves feel better or shall we say more mature, long-term, healthy ways of seeking support for an attack on one's self-esteem. And so they have to turn to superficial means because they just don't have those inner resources. Number three, anger and hostility. When people with narcissistic personality are feeling as though their inferiority is being um, seen or realized by them or other people, they feel very panicked and hurt and they go on the attack uh, at times. Not all the time, but um, often they will, particularly more um, pathological, narcissistic personality people. And this can result in um, mild anger, mild irritability, mild moodiness to uh, murder. This can, uh, you know, for some individuals resort in, you know, the most hostile things that you could ever involve yourself in with the human race. Four is difficulty with empathy. Again, they don't lack empathy. They just have difficulty with it. They have, an, they have empathy, although it's an immature, childish, limited, sort of thin empathy. But they have compassion. They don't, people with narcissistic personality disorder aren't inherently sadistic or psychopathic. They just are so distracted by their need to prop up their grandiose self that they don't have time or energy or maturity to, to one, even know that other people have emotions and two, that uh, they have, then they don't have enough time to pay attention to it. It's similar to people with passive aggressive personality disorder. They don't lack empathy. They just have a really hard time accessing it. And even if they can access it, they don't really understand that other people have emotions and feelings in, in the way that, mature adults do, uh, people who don't have these sorts of personality disorders. Five is difficulty with emotions. Again, as I described in the previous part of this um, series on narcissism, people with narcissistic personality, because they were raised not so well and mistreated and not helped with their emotional awareness and growth, they don't they don't necessarily understand their emotions very well. Their insight isn't as robust. And they also just are uh, upset about having emotions in general, because when you have emotions, uh, particularly hurt, anger, fear, you will feel um, uh, not 
so great, right? It doesn't feel good. Plus, you you also feel because according to our culture, or I don't know, maybe it's some something inherent in human personality that we feel like we're weak. We feel like we're not um, our best self, and so um, people with narcissistic personality will have trouble with these emotion with any of these difficult emotions because one, they don't really feel like anyone will help them, and two, they. Um, uh, don't want to have to admit that they too are um, prone to difficulty. They want to believe that they're fine and that they don't need anybody and that they're unaffected by things and they're superior to to emotions. And so they, they generally have a harder time with emotions. Number six is excessive shame and inferiority. Again, uh, just to I've been referring, it's the cause of everything really, but I just want to make sure that that's highlighted. Number seven is feeling entitled, uh, feeling entitled to be able to break the rules, feeling entitled to more things, uh, stealing ideas from other people. Um, you know, just this notion that they deserve more than the average person or that, or that they just maybe not even in comparison to other people, they just feel like they deserve a lot of things. They deserve money. They deserve uh, to um, take longer vacations, longer breaks at work. They deserve the promotion. They deserve the 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 best looking spouse or the most prestigious job. Or you know, they they deserve. They just feel like they deserve a lot of things as an outgrowth of their compensatory grandiosity and superiority. By extension of that, they just feel like they're entitled. You know. Uh, when, um, you know, Brad Pitt enters a restaurant and doesn't have a reservation, uh, because of his social status, he, I mean, whether he exhibits it or not, he feels like he might deserve, given his social status, to get a table without a reservation, whereas someone else just off the street wouldn't feel that way. I don't know if Brad Pitt feels that way, but... But, you know, once you're treated a certain way and you have a certain mindset and you have a certain um, experience with people around you treating you a certain way, you just start to develop this sense of what you deserve. And when you have a lifetime of telling yourself in a compensatory manner, in an offensive manner, that you're awesome and superior to everybody, then you just naturally start thinking that, well, I deserve a lot of things. Number eight is relationship problems. Uh, it's just a, a catch-all category of uh, all the uh, random and uh, various relationship problems that people with narcissism can exhibit um, from just having a hard time with relating to other people, having a hard time having long-term relationships, ha- having a hard time not getting into conflict, having a hard time even admitting that they depend on other people and need other people. Um, making other people feel like shit, actual abuse, emotional abuse. All these things are um, common issues for people with narcissistic personality. Number nine is envy of others. Because they feel superior and entitled, and because they need to prop up their grandiosity on a constant basis, if someone else has something that is um, considered better than they have, then they need to have that because they don't need to just be superior in general. They need to be superior to everybody. 
particularly people close to them. And so if a coworker or a fellow student in their program or a friend from high school seemingly has something better or bigger, more prestigious than what they have, then, then they, f- they feel severe in envy and they'll even hate the other person for having those things and they'll try to get it. Um, they'll obsess on it. Whereas other people don't necessarily think about that. You know, it's like, it's, um, a really common example of this sort of envy is when people talk about going to their high school reunions, particularly the first one, the, the tenure, a lot of people will talk about how they're, um, you know, if they're being honest with themselves, they'll talk about how they're worried about, um, the fact that their career isn't where they want it to be, or they don't have the beautiful family yet. And, and some people do. And so there's this feeling of shame and also this feeling of envy of other people who have more. Someone at the 10 year reunion has, uh, you know, they're a millionaire and they have this really great job and this beautiful family and house and everything. And, and meanwhile, um, other people are still struggling with their career. They might even be living with their parents and, um, they, they don't own their own house, blah, blah, blah. And they're envious. Um, now not everyone's like that, of course, but take that to an extreme. And that's what someone with narcissistic personality will suffer from. And again, I just want to point out that the common narrative for narcissistic personality on the internet is that these people are in essence, immoral and, um, jerks and assholes. And certainly from the outside, it can feel that way, but on the inside, it's all motivated by deep suffering. They're, they're only envious and they only feel entitled because they are afraid of having to admit that what they believe to be true is true, which is they believe that they're truly inferior deep down. They don't just think they're average deep down. They think they're worthless. They've been told they were worthless. They were treated as though they were worthless. And, um, first, you know, for various reasons, which I'll get into later, they developed this false grandiose self as a defense against that. Um, and, um, you know, that's, that's why they're doing this. So it's, they're not envious because they, they're just assholes. They're envious because they're, they're desperately seeking a, um, solution to their problem. The other thing, again, that I haven't really mentioned in a while, um, is that narcissism doesn't have to be about the self. It can be about other people too. So some people have sort of a mixture. They will be narcissistic about uh, themselves and that they, they think they are awesome and smarter, or they'll um, prop up a life in which they're smarter and better. And they could also be narcissistic about people around them. They can say, uh, my dad is the best dad on the planet. My best friend is the funniest person on the planet. My spouse is the most beautiful person on the planet. Um, my, my company is way better than other people's company. You know, the place where I work has the best coffee or the best product or the, the highest stock price. There's, there's this, this sense of, of ranking that, that they will do, um, to things, not only of themselves, but things that they're associated with. And, um, and sometimes, so that can be, that can be deceptive sometimes because when they talk, they, when they talk about their 
grandiosity, they don't, they don't always necessarily talk about themselves. They, they could be talking about other things around them. And by extension, it sort of elevates them, right? Okay, uh, number 10 is a lack of insight. As true with any personality disorder, it's so pervasive within the personality that the individual doesn't see that their reactions and view of the world is distorted. They think that their view and reactions are rational. Whereas someone who has depression will often know that they are depressed and that while they're depressed, their reactions aren't rational. You know, they'll, uh, you know, one month they'll be feeling mostly okay. And the next month they're very depressed. And during that time they have suicidal thoughts, but at the same time, they know that those thoughts and notions aren't rational and that they shouldn't act on them. Well, for someone with narcissistic personality, when they become symptomatic, which is pretty much all the time, which is the definition of personality disorder, they will not be able to recognize that their ideas are um, uh, not sensical. So when you ask them, you know, is it... Um, do you, you know, you might ask them something like, do you think that you have a, um, do you think you're narcissistic? You know, you ask someone who's depressed, do you think you're depressed? They'll be like, yeah, I'm depressed right now. Uh, you ask someone who has narcissism, who, who, beyond lower levels of, of narcissism, like for myself, uh, it's easier, it's hard, still hard to, it's still hard to admit, but it's much easier to identify because, um, the narcissism doesn't get in the way of the insight for me, for instance. But for people at higher thresholds of narcissism, if you just ask them if they're a narcissistic and made a case for it, they would completely disagree with you. Like, no, it's absurd. I'm not narcissistic. You know, um, I, I don't know. I don't even know what you're talking. They'll either say, I don't know what you're talking about, or they'll be so threatened by the notion that they have a flaw that they will become narcissistically rageful and uh, start just attacking you. Um, and also uh, another part of the, or, or they'll just make a case as to why you're stupid. Um, uh, yeah. So, um, so that's, it's, so it's a lack of insight. It, it's a protective measure, a defensive measure to lack insight, but it's also a maturity matter. You ask a four year old if they're more narcissistic than, adults are they they don't they just they they don't have the inner resources to really turn towards a self-reflective stance to be able to even know what you're asking and so people with narcissism are similar to that the the notion that that they would step outside themselves and really evaluate themselves critically as having good and bad qualities is just something that they've they've never done in their lives and so um they they just don't have the the practice to do that. Number 11 is moodiness. As I talked about in the last episode, when they have a narcissistic supply that is going well, then they can be euphoric, uh, if not, you know, happy, but they can actually be quite euphoric, almost manic seeming. And when their narcissistic supply is threatened, it can, their mood can change on a dime. Like in an instant, they can become uh, very upset and quiet and angry and in a bad mood. 
So uh, that's the moodiness issue there. Number 12 is perfectionism. Not everyone with narcissistic... So the previous 12 or previous 11, I would say, um, everyone with narcissistic personality has. But the the next set are not um, universal. 12 is perfectionism. Not every narcissistic person is perfectionistic, but but many are. And the idea is, is that they're anxious about coming across as having a flaw or making a mistake. And so they become perfectionistic, which can lead to them actually avoiding tasks that they're not quite sure if they're going to be able to pull off perfectly. And they can also require perfection of other people because of their lack of differentiation between them and them and other people. They, uh, might, they define their perfection through people who are close to them and and their uh, behavior. 13 is hypochondriacal, which is um, worry about physical ailments and dying. And this is somewhat common to people with narcissistic personality. And the idea goes that I have is that the narcissistic people don't want to be sick because that means that they're not perfect and it, and it threatens their uh, perfection, which is threatening to their sanity and their, the foundation that they stand on all the time, which is, which is thin ice to begin with. And it also, I think has to do with this entitlement to life that people with narcissism will have. They, they just feel like, well, I'm superior, I'm better, and I deserve to live forever. And being sick or have, or the possibility of having cancer or something just completely dismantles that whole thing because the narcissistic person has to really internalize and accept the fact that they're, they're mortal like anyone else. 14 is impatience is, uh, you know, often people who are narcissistic are impatient. Uh, maybe this is one of the universal ones. Maybe I'll bump this up to one of the universal ones. Um, the idea is is that uh, people who are narcissistic feel entitled to their time. They feel entitled to not have to wait, and they will become very impatient, uh, particularly if other people are getting in their way, and uh, will um, get much more moody and upset and aggravated and might even avoid tasks just because they don't want to have to wait in line or they don't want to have to sit in a boring meeting or something. Uh, number 15 is extreme coping methods, which uh, are, again, a reaction to the deep suffering. Uh, when their narcissistic supply isn't going so well, which you know can happen quite often, they need to turn to substances or other kinds of extreme self-destructive coping methods in order to cope with the, the deep feeling of despair and emptiness. And this can be alcohol, other substances. It can be sex. It could be, I don't know, um, like I said, travel, exercise. Eating disorders could be one of the coping methods. Uh, cutting could be a coping method. 16 is a lack of ethics. Uh, makes sense in terms of the uh, difficulty with empathy, difficulty with anger, feeling entitled, being envious of other people can lead to a general lack of ethics. Uh, they feel like they're above ethics, but they also are immature and 
when you're immature, you don't necessarily see the bigger picture in terms of your responsibilities. Number 17 is they often make repetitive mistakes. Uh, maybe this is another universal one that I could bump up. Uh, it, they will make mistakes because of a lack of insight, because they have a desperation to um, uh, continue their defense mechanism at all costs. And so you'll see them just make the same mistake over and over and over again. They will, um, you know, tweet in the middle of the night, um, even though no one around them is uh, saying that that's a good idea. They will involve themselves with um, a certain sort of person who isn't the best for them. They will get fired from jobs in the same way. They will um, be mean to other people and um, and, at, and at times realize that that's not fair, but they'll, they'll still continue to do it because they lack the, the ability to reflect on themselves and learn from their mistakes. And again, they're so desperate to hold up their defensive structure that they um, don't have time to learn from their mistakes. Okay, so those are the 17 elements or symptoms or aspects of narcissistic personality. Uh, not everyone has all of them, but many have most, and everyone expresses it differently. As I was saying before, uh, no two narcissistic personality disordered people are the same. There are people every I've you know I've treated many people with narcissistic personality. They're all they're all very different, and it's on a spectrum, as I was talking about earlier. You have people on one end who, if you know, it's sort of a, a philosophical exercise in terms of even trying to decide what is the quote-unquote ends of the spectrum. But for me, one end of the spectrum, you would have someone like Charles Manson, who is also psychopathic, antisocial, who uh, believes that he's God of the world and um, and is in a constant... Uh, frame of mind to get people to wor literally worship him. And then, um, you know, a step down from that, you have people who are highly problematic and um, uh, highly narcissistic and very noticeably narcissistic, but they're not as bad as Charles Manson, <laughs> you know. And then, you know, you sort of work your way down until you get to someone like me who. I was talking about in the previous episode that I would estimate I'm about 5% narcissistic personality and I have insight into it, you know, over time with therapy and it's in it, it, it doesn't threaten me to admit that because I have also, I've been raised well enough that I have a inner resource to be able to withstand the embarrassment or shame of having to admit that I I'm slightly narcissistic. Um, but I do, so I have a sense of self. Um, but I've participated in some compensatory grandiosity. Uh, I suppose I've probably been hostile at, at times when um, my minor need for narcissistic supply has not gone so well. Um, when I was younger, I probably had some trouble with empathy. I, I don't have trouble with it now. Um, envious of others, probably. I don't think I, think I have that problem. Uh, moodiness, maybe. Uh, repetitive mistakes, maybe some perfectionism, some hypochondriasis, maybe um, lack of ethics. Yeah, I mean, when I was in college, there were uh, some 
moments of lack of ethics. I laugh because the things that I did were not, uh, you know, they were of little consequence really, but they, among my friends there, I was willing to do things uh, regarding the law, shall we say that, um, was, uh, not average, (laughs) you know, just, pranks and minor vandalism and uh, just goofing around, I guess. Um, Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, And my friends would participate with me, but I didn't have a lot of friends who were uh, as bad as I was, let's put it that way. But I wasn't that bad. You know, it wasn't like I felt like it was okay to steal from other people or to, um, I don't know, things that I would be truly ashamed of. When I look back on my college uh, unethical behavior, uh, I, I'm not really ashamed of it. I, I don't what you know, I can talk about it with my friends and, and cringe a little bit, but not feel horrible. Cause you know, I'll, I'll give an example. Like, um, in college one time, uh, me and some friends, we, uh, you know, we were drinking and we go to the dorms and, there was this, uh, this couch that in the lobby and we really wanted the couch for our, for our room back where we were living. And so we just picked up the couch in the middle of the, of the lobby and decided to take it. Um, you know, no one sat on that couch. It was like in a weird corner of the, of this really old lobby of a big man hall, I think it was. And, it's, you know, owned by the university and we're paying tuition, (laughs) you know, it's not right. It's illegal. And, uh, I shouldn't have done that, but you know, I, I'm not plus as we're, you know, um, almost home, the cops, uh, caught us and we had to return the, um, the couch and we, you know, spent some time, uh, in jail, (laughs) which, you know, we fully deserved, and, uh, you know, we never did it again, but so it's that kind of, uneth- yeah, I had friends who would never do that. They would just be like, why would you do that? It's stupid, you know? And you know, that's because they don't have a narcissistic personality. They have a, um, more, uh, healthy sense of what's right and wrong. They have a more healthy sense of what they're entitled to. And, um, and that wouldn't occur to them when they were 19 <laughs> or, or they also didn't have the narcissistic sense of being superior to the law. You know, that's another thing that narcissistic people will be, they'll, they'll just be like, well, the law, you know, rules are made for breaking. And, and it, if everyone felt that way, you know, like uh, stop signs, for example, um, I would imagine, I haven't seen data, but I would imagine that people with narcissistic personality are, much less likely to stop for a stop sign or, or to really adhere to the conventions of stop signs. And as you increase the narcissism, you're just like, well, you know, stop signs aren't really for me. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to bother with stop signs. I'm going to blow through them or I'm going to, you know, do a much, uh, I'm just going to do a rolling stop and blah, blah, blah. Well, if everyone did that, there would be a lot more accidents, right? So, um, so if, if everyone acted the way narcissistic people did about road rules, there would be a lot more, um, accidents, but as it is, there's only some people who consider themselves 
superior to the law in that way. And, and that's another thing that sometimes, uh, I must drop the mic, that I see on the road is that when I, I see people acting in strange ways on the road or being extremely angry on the road about something that, you know, the next time you uh, experience a driver on the road and they're just super fucking pissed off at you and you're just trying to figure out why are you so angry? Like, let it go. There, there's two main possi- possibilities that I, that I often think of as I'm trying to understand this strange behavior in other people. One is that they have trauma about being on the road. They have PTSD. And so when um, something happens on the road, will trigger them, whether it's you or someone else. And they'll just, they'll fly into a traumatic rage because they're, they're deeply traumatized by cars in some way, whether they, maybe they got an accident or maybe they're physically abused as children and, and they just have a general uh, trigger to danger. And so when they're in that situation, they're, they're in a state of, of dissociation or PTSD rage. Um, the other situation that I conceptualize is that they're narcissistic in that they um, were driving down the road and then you uh, signaled and got over, but to them it felt like a direct humiliation to them and a, a direct affront and they'll interpret it that way because of their personality. And then they will pull up beside you and start screaming at you and flip you off because they uh, their narcissistic supply has been challenged by you. You know, you did to, in their narrative of what happened. What you should have done was to be completely um, sensitive to their path on the road. That you sh- should never get in their way, and that you should get behind them because they are better, and th- and they need to uphold that. Because if they don't, then you know their personality crumbles from the lack of self and the emptiness and the despair and the inferiority, and so. By you, um, you know, their word is that their deep down sense is that you've humiliated them and you have, um, you know, you've done something to affront them or I can't anyway. Um, and therefore you deserve to be attacked. So that's, you know, and, and so the lack of ethics, the, uh, and, you know, entitlement and all that stuff can manifest in that way too. All right. So let's move on to uh, what narcissistic personality disorder is not. So again, as I was talking about in the last part, narcissistic personality disorder is not just taking a selfie. It's not posting on Facebook a lot. It's not just being a liar, like the internet would say. The internet will say like, um, you know, is your husband lying a lot? He has narcissistic personality disorder. Um, you know, and then they'll, again, they'll have this picture of this young Asian girl taking a selfie and it's like, this is narcissistic personality disorder. Um, cheating, you know, infidelity is an extremely weak sign of narcissistic personality. Having low self-esteem is not necessarily narcissistic personality. Having high self-esteem is not necessarily narcissistic personality. The internet likes to say lots of things like, um, here's one article. Here's a list of celebrities who have shown explicit signs of narcissistic personality disorder. Alexander the Great, Napoleon, Hitler, uh, Oprah, uh, Miley Cyrus, Kim Kardashian, Conway, Elvis, 
William Shatner, Pablo, Pablo Picasso, Ryan O'Neill, Marlon Brando, Simon Cowell, Alec Baldwin, Sharon Stone, Ike Turner, Lee Harvey Oswald, Charlie Chaplin, Liberace, um, Lady Gaga, Miley Cyrus. Did I ever say Miley Cyrus? Um, Marilyn Manson, Margaret Thatcher, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, of course, every politician that anyone has hated has narcissistic personality. And by this definition, anyone who chooses a job in the spotlight has narcissistic personality disorder, which obviously is not true. And but what I'll say is, if given the chance to fully assess these people, I might actually find, in my opinion, that some of these people can be labeled with narcissistic personality. But just looking at our narrative of their story or what we've been told about them is not a reliable assessment tool. I I mean, I understand why people would think that Alexander the Great was narcissistic because he thought he could do anything and he made a lot of choices that were not, I mean, he was a, you know, a brilliant general, but he also made a lot of choices that a lot of people would not have taken because of the risk involved. But he believed that he, you know, he could do no wrong at least from the evidence that we have. Again, we're talking about thousands of years ago, so how do we really know? And yet, people on the internet are diagnosing Alexander the Great with narcissistic personality. Um, I mean, if we really had a chance to talk with him, we might find out that he, you know, had a lot of insight and was raised well, and he just, you know, decided, like, well, that's what kings do in Macedonia, is we conquer. And our economy isn't doing that well. So it actually is a political choice that I'm making or whatever. Um, so yeah, according to the criteria on the internet, all Americans have narcissistic personality. If you think about it, I mean, look at our country, look at the way that we are in general. I mean, we tend to see things from our perspective, right? Many of us think that our country is special, you know, exceptional, the best country that's ever existed, the best form of government. We try to impose our government and our belief system and our culture on others around the world. We often invade and occupy other countries at will. We love our culture, our movies, our famous people, our TV shows. You know, we're just obsessed with fame. We invented all of the narcissistic elements of our global society today. The internet, social media, mass fame, um, you know, music videos, and so on. Um, you know, in a way, we're all the Kanye on the world stage, and other countries, according to the criteria set forth on the internet, could claim that we all suffer from narcissistic personality disorder, but that's really silly. Narcissistic personality disorder is a very specific mental condition, and um, in a way, narcissism or acting narcissistically is in a sense a weak sign of actually suffering from narcissistic personality disorder so um yeah now that haven't that and so that's the internet right the internet is mistaken but you know people in the our field are also mistaken psychologists psychiatrists other mental Health people have been publicly diagnosing presidents and other politicians with narcissistic personality disorder for a while now. Um, you know, Donald Trump, for example. So I want to read a article by Dr. Samuel uh, Vaknin. Vaknin? Dr. Samuel Vaknin. So this is a clinician, and he wrote a recent article about a president, and he, he, this is, I'm going to quote him. 
He evinces symptoms of pathological narcissism, which which is different from the run-of-the-mill narcissism of a Richard Nixon or a Bill Clinton, for example. To him, reality and fantasy are intertwined. This is a mental health issue, not just a character flaw. So again, he evinces symptoms of pathological narcissism. Uh, It's worse than Richard Nixon, worse than Bill Clinton. Um, To him, reality and fantasy are intertwined. This is a mental health issue, not just a character flaw. So who do you think he's talking about? Sounds like Trump, right? Nope, he was talking about Obama, when Obama was president. Clinicians who hated Obama, journalists who hated Obama, regularly diagnosed him with narcissistic personality disorder. And during that time, you had uh, clinicians on the left saying, Goldwater rule, you can't diagnose presidents with narcissistic personality. That's unethical. What do you do? Why are you diagnosing Obama? That's absurd. Well, then when Trump was elected, boom, all the people on the left suddenly are like, well, geez, Trump has narcissistic personality disorder. But all recent presidents have been diagnosed with uh, narcissistic personality disorder or other personality disorders by various clinicians. Clinton, Bush, Carter, Gore. I mean, even Chester Arthur. Uh, Do you even know Chester Arthur? He was one of our presidents in the uh, 1880s. He was diagnosed uh, not with narcissistic personality disorder because we didn't have that back then. But 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 people have gone back and uh, you know diagnosed him. (laughs) So do you see my point? We. We can't lower ourselves to diagnosing presidents that we don't like. As I've said many times before, feel feel free to hate Trump. Feel free to think he is dangerous. Feel free to assess that his politics are wrong, that he's setting us back, that you don't like the way he talks, that you don't like the way he votes, you don't like the way he represents our country. You know, I get why many people would not like him and and want to talk out against him. You know, fine, go for it. But you have to use ethical means. You cannot violate ethical standards to to do that. You can use ethical means like obviously voting, protesting, speaking up, writing your congressperson. Uh, How about just not paying attention to him? Or uh, how about trying to convince him to act differently or trying to convince his supporters to think more uh, the way that you do by and by not attacking Trump supporters, by actually trying to reach out to them in a empathetic, diplomatic way. But uh, those are all good, effective ways of actually acting on your politics. Uh, diagnosing him is not going to do any good. Do you think Trump supporters are going to be convinced? And even if they were, do you think they care? So, and do you think that diagnosing him is going to get him stripped of his presidency? It's absurd. It's, it's wrongheaded. Um, so it doesn't do any good, one. And two, it's unethical. Um, unless he was your patient, and uh, then it would be okay to assess and perhaps label him as such. But you wouldn't be able to talk about it with anybody because that's against ethics and HIPAA uh, unless he consents to you revealing it to everyone in the world, which would um, never happen. And even then, actually, now I think about it, you know, say Trump hired me as his therapist, as his clinician, and I assessed him and I, you know, over time, I, a couple months, I was like, okay, you know, I, I think I, I'm ready to label him 
in my file as someone who has narcissistic personality disorder. And then for some reason, he's like, I want you to tell the world that I have narcissistic personality disorder. Uh, one could consider it actually unethical for me to even comply with his request because it's such a weird request and could hurt him that I would be going along with some sort of self-harm or something that he was engaging in if he actually did consent to me telling everybody. So um, anyway, and, and I've done that before. You know, there have been people who have asked me to talk with, you know, other people about, you know, things. And I've actually not done it because I didn't think it was good for them. And I, I thought it was actually um, some evidence of their pathology that was playing out. And I didn't think that they were thinking straight. Um, and again, even if someone did diagnose him properly and he did provide consent and uh, to tell everyone and then you did reveal it, uh, narcissistic personality disorder is not a real thing. It's a construct. And the label is just used to indicate um, that a competent clinician has properly assessed someone and provided their opinion about their personality or their disorder. It's, it's, it's just an opinion. It's not, a, it's not hard science. So even if, you know, like we, you, could have a, you could have 10 clinicians agree that Trump has narcissistic personality disorder and you could have Trump even consenting to say, yep, I have it. And you could still say, well, I mean, you know, we don't really know if he has it because we don't really know what it is. So um, we only use these labels uh, for a few reasons. One is so we can bill insurance companies because there needs to be some justification for treatment, right? Insurance companies won't just pay for anything. You know, the insurance companies aren't going to, for example, like some insurance companies pay for massage therapy and some don't. Um, I, I'm guessing because some massage therapy is actually done for actual medical reasons like back pain or something. And some massage therapy is just done recreationally. You know, I've gone to massage therapists before, and most of the time I don't really need it. You know, I'm just doing it for the spa experience of relaxation, you know, getting loose. But I don't, there's no medical reason for me to be doing it. So insurance companies really shouldn't be paying for it in those, in those examples. And so, you know, a lot of people go to therapy recreationally because they don't, they don't really need it. They like it and it's, it's beneficial, but it's, it's not a medical necessity on the level of, say, cancer treatment or something. And so we have to have some way of delineating between recreational therapy and medically necessary therapy. And so we have the Diagnostic Statistical Manual as a way of um, uh, delineating people who have disorders and then among those disorders, uh, uh, which ones are actually considered medically necessary for therapy. It also is a way for helping us to do research and helping us to figure out treatment plans, but they're not actual things. You know, they're, they're ideas that we cobble together and they change over time. So, uh, you know, that all just has to be there. And I just want to remind everybody about the Goldwater rule. This is the informal name that was given to, um, a, Code of Ethic within the American Psychiatric Association from 1964, in which a uh, publication called Fact, they published an article, and uh, the magazine polled psychiatrists about their uh, opinion about Senator Barry Goldwater and whether or not he was fit to be president. He never, you know, won the presidency, but 
he was running for it. And the magazine asked a bunch of psychiatrists, uh, you know, do you, th- what do you think about Goldwater and his personality? And Goldwater was a conservative Republican. And some psychiatrists went on record with the magazine saying that Goldwater was unfit to be president. He was mentally unfit. And uh, as if to say that these psychiatrists had assessed Goldwater and um, ha- were, and they were providing a clinical opinion. They weren't just providing a, a citizen's opinion. They were providing a medical opinion that this person was unfit to be president. Goldwater filed a libel suit and won uh, thousands of dollars in damages, which was just, in my opinion, you can't, you can't just diagnose from afar like that. Again, as a psychiatrist, you can speak up, generally speaking. You can speak up in terms of um, your politics, your you know freedom of speech, all that stuff. But um, but this is you know we have we have to be able to properly assess people, and even then we have to get their consent. <clears throat> so um, uh, so the American Psychiatric Association created an ethical code, and it said. It is unethical for a psychiatrist to offer a professional opinion unless he or she has conducted an examination and has been granted proper authorization for such a statement. Um, Other professional organizations have also made such ethical codes like the American Counseling Association, uh, the uh, American Association of Marriage and Family Therapy, the American Psychological Association, all of these ethical codes discuss the necessity for the following elements. You need to have informed consent, meaning that you have to um, get consent from the client that you're assessing them and that you're working with them. And of course, none of these uh, psychiatrists got that from Goldwater and none of the people uh, online are getting it from Trump or Obama. You have to have confidentiality. Obviously, that's been broken. You have to provide and uh, conduct proper assessment procedures. Of course, no one has done that. And you need to act within your area of competence, which um, some probably are and some probably aren't. But at the very least, who no one is competent to diagnose someone from the media just by reading articles about them. Now, again, I just want to say there's a big difference between lay people saying that someone is narcissistic. So, you know, someone on online can call Trump or Obama or Chester Arthur narcissistic. That is an adjective. It's an opinion. It's non-clinical. That's very different than an expert or a lay person saying that someone has narcissistic personality disorder. That's a very, very different statement. One is opinion and fine. And, you know, it's like calling someone an asshole. It's like, well... It's not a clinical diagnosis. Anyone can call someone an asshole. You can say that someone is great. You can say, let's make America great again. Well, what, what is great? Well, there is no clinical diagnosis for, for, or criteria for great country, <laughs> you know, make our country great again. It's just, you know, it's just rhetoric. It's just talking and that's, that's fine. That's great. But, uh, but narcissistic personality disorder is a very specific label that is, uh, uh, regulated by ethical codes and by a profession and by procedures and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Having said all that, for the first time, so I actually watched some, for the first time in my life, I really just sat down and studied uh, Donald Trump. I uh, haven't done a full, you know, scholarly uh, deep dive on him, but I have 
looked into his life in a more systematic way. I mean, I, I've been experiencing, I'm 47. So I, in some ways I grew up with Donald Trump. He, he was always in the news some from the eighties through the nineties through the aughts. And of course now, and so he's been around in my awareness since, um, probably the mid eighties. And, um, so I, you know, I've I've known about him, but I've never really just sat down and looked at his personality like through the decades and stuff. And I I finally kind of did that. So let me be clear. Um, it is clear to me that it, there's a high likelihood. I can't say for sure because I haven't assessed him, but it's clear to me that there's a high likelihood that he is he's on the spectrum, just like I am. You know, I'm five percent. I'm guessing he's probably. On the 40%, 50% range, um, I'll get more into that later, but, but I'm not, I can't assess him, I'm, and I'm not assessing him. I'm just saying there's a high likelihood given the data. And, and there's, you know, a fair amount of data. We don't have a lot of data on, say, Alexander the Great, right? We, we, we have, you know, historical writing, but, but the amount of data we have on Donald Trump is, you know, there's quite a bit because, he gets interviewed a lot. There's a lot of stories about him, and um, there's times when he's being recorded when he doesn't know he's being recorded. And, and so um, so let me provide just a few data points because I'm sure some of you are like, well, um, surely we can say something about his personality. And yeah, we can, but we cannot diagnose him with anything. And, uh, and, and, we, and we always have to say as clinicians, well, you know, can't, I can't assess him, don't really know, but here are some things that I've seen that indicate to me that there's, you know, a chance, but again, it's all just probability, right? So some data points are, you know, that I, that are confirmed fact is he had a fake publicist. Um, Many of you probably know this, but if you don't, he for a long time would call journalists and would act like he was his own publicist. So it'd be like, if me, if I called, you know, journalists and I said, hello, my name is Jake Smith and I am Kirk Honda's publicist. And uh, so, you know, what do you want to know about Kirk? And the journalist is like, well, you know, what's he like? You know, what's he like behind the scenes? And I'd be like, oh, he's a great guy. Uh, the ladies love him. He's he's a brilliant man. And, you know, he's he's a very important man. He knows lots of things. Like Donald Trump had has done this uh, several times and he's been recorded and it's obvious that it's him. Like it is his distinct voice and his, and it's not like short recordings. Like there are journalists who have, um, you know, several minutes, you know, maybe half an hour or more of recordings of him uh, doing this. And the whole time he's just bragging about, himself but he's talking about himself in the third person oh donald trump women love him they just throw themselves at him he is he's a he's a genius you know he's a beautiful man everyone loves him you know very you know it'd be one thing if he faked like he was his own publicist and talked shit about him right but no he's not he's, he's just like very glowing statements and you know uh which is weird because you'd think he'd be able to pay a publicist to be able to do that right but i think he just I don't know. So this is evidence of someone who's desperate. This is, you know, he's not a, he's not a dummy. And to resort to this, you have to be desperate, right? I mean, you've got to be 
it backed into a corner. And that's the thing about people on the spectrum is they can often come across like everything's fine because they know how to behave in a way that gives off a certain vibe. They, they know that they're on camera or they know they're being watched. And so he, he'll come across like everything's fine. But if you just look at this objectively, he is, he is doing a desperate act. There, he must have needed to do that and desperate enough that he resorted to taking a risk. I mean, like I said, he's, he's, he's not an idiot, right? He knows that he's taking a risk here and he resorted to it. And so he must be deeply suffering uh, in that moment um, and deeply desperate to resort to such a degree. Um, because there are other ways that he would resort to that actually um, did give him narcissistic supply. So why would he resort to this one um, so often or as often as he did? I don't know how many times he did it. But um, he also I found interesting that in um, my deep dive of of his and the interviews and his because he's been involved kind of in politics ever since he came on the scene, because when he started building in Manhattan, there were. Uh, politicians and politics were involved because of like tax breaks and stuff. And so his, his uh, success in, in building things in Manhattan had a lot to do with, with politics and how people in Manhattan thought of Trump and thought of the politicians that supported him or uh, didn't like him or stuff. And, and so, so when he would be interviewed or he would have debates with people about things, some, often it was about politics and he from a very early age, he was bullying people. He, the way he argues is a very bullying, intimidating uh, style. And again, this was way before he was interested in running for president. Uh, presidents kind of do this anyway, honestly. They, they have a way of, every politician has a way of, of managing the conversation to their benefit um, in, a, in a very annoying way, in my opinion. All politicians do this. I suppose it's like you say, well, they all have to in order to um, uh, manage conversations well enough so that they don't go down certain roads. But, but Trump has been doing this way before he was ever running for office. And um, what I found interesting is he was doing it right from the start. So he, he didn't develop that intimidating, bullying style later in life. He, he's, he's been doing this for decades. Um, and this is evidence of someone who is, again, desperate and backed into a corner and they're coming out swinging. And again, he looks poised and he looks in control, but deep down, he, he, this, is, this is evidence of defensive structure. It, you know, it's not like Donald Trump or other people on the spectrum are in a constant state of rage. They're, they only resort to rage when, and intimidation when they feel afraid of their defensive structure being torn down and, and challenged. Um, another data point is when he was talking to Billy Bush, he says, this is quote, when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Grab him in the pussy. You can do anything, unquote. So he said that. That's a quote. And he admitted to it. He apologized for it. Said it was locker room talk. Um, this is... You know, it's hard to say exactly what's going on in that moment, but, you know, it's another data point. He is evidencing that he feels entitled to women's bodies. And again, this is not the statement of a 22-year-old frat guy, not to denigrate frat guys, but, you know, um, a 20-year-old 
douchey college kid. You know, the, the, the statement like that would still be abhorrent, but it would be uh, more culturally understandable. When Trump said this, he was, I think, in his 60s or 70s. I mean, he was, it was recent, you know. When you're a star, you can do anything. Grab them by the pussy. You can do anything. Like, that came out of his mouth to other people that he didn't know that well. He's not talking to his buddies. He's talking to, like, there's, like, um, you know, Billy Bush is obviously there, who was a, a journalist who could, I mean, he didn't know he was being recorded, but um, Billy Bush could turn around and say, you know what, Donald Trump said this and that. And there were other people in that in that bus, too, that could have said the same thing. So he he's comfortable enough with this notion uh, that he's telling these random people about it. And so it seems indicative of someone who feels entitled to women's bodies. Now, that's a cultural thing, too, right? I mean, men are generally taught that notion. But again, when you look at all the different data points of Trump's life, you know, uh, there's a, there's this is another data point. If, if this was all that was there, that's not narcissistic personality uh, spectrum. But um, when you when you add up all the various different things, um, and this is one of them. Also, in this moment, he seems to be lacking empathy. Um, again, he doesn't lack empathy, but if he has, if he's on narcissistic spectrum, it's that he has trouble expressing it because, again, he's desperate and suffering. He's also bragging in this moment, or you know, he thinks he's bragging, um, and he's trying to make himself look cool to other men, trying himself look, trying to make himself look masculine or something, some version of masculinity that. My God, I would want to divorce myself from. Um, he puts his name on everything. He um, seemingly has had a desperate need to be famous from the very start. Um, he puts that above all else, really, because there's been times in his career when he was nowhere near being able to run for office. And he was, um, you know, a builder officially. But really, there were just all these stunts that he would pull off as a way of trying to um, – be famous. Now, one could argue if you just really analyze his life that he benefited from being famous because people liked him, which meant that the voters liked him, which meant that politicians would have to give in to him when he gave press conferences, which would give him tax breaks, tax breaks on his construction projects, which would make him more money. So in some ways, it was a savvy business choice to be liked by the people, which is synonymous with being famous, which which can't be ignored that, you know, he's a business. He was originally a businessman. Right. And so uh, businessmen will do what they need to do to increase profit as long as they're not, you know, murdering anybody or blah, blah, blah. And so he resorted to a, a lot of things that worked that made him money um, with the Taj Mahal and Atlantic City. He bit off more than he could chew, but you know, um, there were times when his his fame grab was a very savvy business choice. So again, it's hard to know what is truly motivating him. What would be interesting is if we could go back in time and just take a Donald Trump and um, at the age of twenty or so, just take away all of his money and all of his privilege and just see what kind of personality would be exhibited through his twenties and thirties. Would we see the degree of narcissism that we see, you know, from the media that we can see? Um, or would we see, 
a regular guy with slight narcissistic traits who, um, you know, didn't really engage in any of the things that bother uh, people who don't like him. You know, it's just, it's hard to know because when you live in a system in a country and a legal system and a political system and a fame system that actually rewards you for um, being this way, then it's hard to know, is it him or is it society creating him? I mean, the thing that um, I really remember was in the 80s, he uh, lived in a time, he was the famous, glamorous dude uh, of the 80s. And the 80s were all about fame and glamour and riches. I mean, there was a TV show called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. This was one of the most popular TV shows. If you're, if you're too young to know this, this will sound bizarre because you grew up in a different time. But we had a TV show in the 80s called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. And it was one of the most popular TV shows that had ever been made. And each episode was profiling different rich and famous people. Their big yachts and their big cars and their big houses and their elaborate parties. And people in America loved this show unironically. It was, you know, now if there was a TV show like this, like, you know, later he had MTV Cribs or, you know, and there's other kinds of shows like this. But, but in the 80s, there was no irony about our love for money. There was, there was very little criticism or self-reflection on uh, the excesses of riches. We just, we loved it. We ate that shit up. And, um, you know, eventually like religion even became based on riches. You know, this, the certain religious, uh, Christians sex would emerge and say that, um, I can't remember the exact doctrine, but it's something about like, uh, you know, building your wealth is, is evidence that God loves you and stuff. Like it just became really insane. And Trump was the golden boy of this whole thing. America loved Trump. I mean, that's something, something that I forgot until I, you know, started looking into his life again was like, oh yeah, I forgot. Everyone loved Trump. I mean, you could say that everyone that, a lot of people loved him when he was doing The Apprentice. You know, certainly a lot of people loved him. Umberto was talked about how he really looked up to Donald Trump because of that TV show. Um, but he had already, he had been through a lot of ups and downs by that point. So there were people that, you know, had some dirt on him and didn't like him. In the mid-80s, there wasn't any of that. He was the darling of our society. He was, um, in some, some people in New York considered him the savior of Manhattan to to pull Manhattan out of the crime-ridden, uh, rotten apple core that it had become. I mean, the narrative around him was incredible. And so the notion that he would think highly of himself or that he would market himself as an awesome dude it is like condemning Michael Jackson for thinking that he was awesome or condemning Donald Glover, another Donald, right? Donald Glover, uh, you know, should feel really good about himself. He's an amazing actor, writer, song, you know, performer, thinker. Uh, Donald Glover should be proud of the things he's accomplished. And Donald Trump in the eighties, you know, I, it's hard for me to say the words, but anyway, so it's just really hard to tease out the difference between the society that Trump, uh, you know, molded him in and what his true personality is like. Um, 
Anyway, other, other data points about Trump is that he doesn't drink, right? And this is purely speculative for me, but it's possible, and I've seen this before, that some people with narcissistic personality, they don't drink because they, they hate being out of control and they hate making a fool of themselves. They, they see how foolish people look when they're drinking and, and that is abhorrent to them. It's much more important to them to be perfectionistic about their persona than to, um, than to drink, you know. Also, um, the last one that I'm sure many of you are thinking of in terms of narcissism is that currently, according to reports, so we have to take this with a grain of salt, is that reportedly Donald Trump twice a day is given a file of all of his good reviews, you know, positive reviews twice a day, you know. Uh, tweets that are admiring of Donald Trump. He just gets this. He just gets this pile of of letters, and and twice a day Trump reads all of these, you know, positive things about him. Nothing critical. Twice a day. Now, again, these are reports, so you know, God knows. But if this is true, this is you know, it's evidence of being on the spectrum of narcissistic personality, because um, not only is criticism. You know, not only does he deny criticism because it's too intolerable to him, but uh, he, if he needs that much um, positive feedback, uh, you know, twice a day, you know, he's a busy guy, he's got a lot of things to do, but twice a day he does this, that this is the sign of someone who is deeply suffering, right? If you're spending that much time trying to prop up the fact that people like you and that you're worthy, uh, by definition, you must be feeling extremely unworthy. And if you're not given that positive feedback, you don't even know who you are. And that's what I've been talking about with narcissistic personality is that it, they don't think highly of themselves. That's, that's the important thing. The, the important thing to know is they don't think anything of themselves because they don't have the ability to think about themselves. They only have the ability to look to other people to define them. And so, um, so they, and they want to feel good about themselves as anybody does, but since they have no inner resources to make themselves feel worthy on the planet, imagine that, imagine having no inner resources at all to be able to do that. You defensively react by grasping for something to give yourself a shred of self-worth. And since you can't, provide it from within or retain that's the other thing is like people with narcissistic personality they can't retain positive feedback because there's nothing to retain there's no personality to grab onto it and so they need this constant narcissistic supply to prop up this uh, very uh, short-term memory notion that they're worthy on the planet and so um, this is you know evidence of narcissistic personality um so, you know, again, having said that, I'm not diagnosing him. I don't have access to him, obviously. I've never assessed him. And it's possible that everything I just said is, you know, based on fake news. Because if it's one thing I have learned is to become extremely skeptical of everything that is in the media, particularly about Donald Trump. I mean, there was this one thing I'm embarrassed to admit that was going around the Internet um, about a year ago. And it was someone who was, um, had claimed to have taken these grainy pictures of Trump in the Oval Office getting a spray tan. <laughs> and 
I hate to admit this, but for about five seconds, I thought these pictures were real. And I just thought, oh, my God, these pictures are awful. Uh, Donald Trump is going to hate these pictures. And then pretty quickly, I was like, wait a second. These are probably fake. <laughs> but they definitely played into a narrative that, you know, I had in my head. And therefore, I, you know, a part of me wanted to believe that it was true. And and um, anyway, so you just it's just hard to know. And I'm OK with not knowing because uh, it doesn't really matter to me. What matters more to me, again, is that if people don't like things that our government are doing, like separating children and their parents, then you, you speak up about it and you vote in that direction and you make statements and you try to convince Trump supporters that that's wrong and you petition your Congress people and, um, you know, take action, protest in the street. Uh, but diagnosing him is not the way. So like I said, um, if I did get a chance to actually assess him, I'm guessing that I would find he was in like the, the 40 to 50% range, not the 100% or the 80% range. You know, people, most people think like he's the most malignant narcissist who has ever lived. But th that's evidence that um, uh, when people say that, when people say that, Donald Trump is the is the worst narcissist that ever lived. What that tells me is that that person doesn't really know what narcissistic personality disorder is, or they've they've never really seen someone with full blown narcissistic personality. If he were higher on the scale, he would likely have a extremely dysfunctional life, one that he would not be able to uh, build into the life that he has now. Um, like working on The Apprentice, for example. I mean, uh, you know, there are people who say they hate working with him. But there's enough people who are working with him that, you know, things have gone. He's succeeded. He's managed to uh, gain friends, gain allies and stuff. And this doesn't mean he doesn't have narcissistic personality. But if he were f totally full-blown narcissistic personality, he would be pushing people so far away from him that it would really be hard for him to be successful in anything. Um, you know, many people, many people do like him and do like working with him, uh, which is evidence that he has enough maturity and enough non narcissism in his personality to be able to handle listening to others, responding to other people, having some empathy. Um, uh, if he were more, if he were higher up on the scale, according to my experience with people with narcissistic personality, he would have spun out of control more so when he was a young person um, or he would have been involved in more overt narcissistic rage of violence and aggression uh, as a younger person um, or I don't know, or he would have resorted to uh, greater substance abuse to deal with the severe emptiness that full blown narcissistic personality people suffer from. Um, so, you know, in summary, uh, if you if you really look at Donald Trump uh, and the his holistic life, if you don't just cherry pick the the bad moments, so to speak, um, there's there's a lot of evidence that you know he's a he he has an intact personality. He can listen to people. He understands people. He um, he knows how to make some people feel good. You know, um, you know. There's now. Currently, it's really hard to evaluate his personality at all because there's just so much pressure on him in terms of, you know, the country and the world and 
um, being in the media all the time. But, but I'm talking about like when you actually look at his life, um, when it was still, when he was still relatively not as famous as he is now. I mean, he was still kind of famous, but, but you know, there's, there were times when he, like you hear people describe him at, at work and they'll say like, um, you know, sure. He was a, you know, he knew when he didn't like something, you know, he made sure you knew it, but you know, he, he was, uh, he was good to me in my career and, and he advocated for me and, you know, he stood up for me and, you know, these kinds of things. Um, so again, you just have to take that with all, with a grain, with a grain of salt. Um, but you know, this is, this is my opinion. Other clinicians would possibly and probably would have a different argument and they would be right as well. Because again, this is not a hard science. Um, narcissistic personality is a constructed thing that uh, we use. We use that label to explain our rough, low resolution observations of humans. And any, as long as you're in the ballpark, you know, like if I said, um, I don't know, if I said that a tree was narcissistic personality, had narcissistic personality, uh, that's wrongheaded based on so many things, right? So, so we do have a spectrum of like, there is a line that you cross where you you're talking completely out of your butt. But for me to say that um, there's a chance that if I did assess Trump, that I would find him to be at the forty to fifty percent range. Um, I you can't really argue against me as if I'm scientifically, factually, objectively wrong um, because. I'm making an argument based on experience and expertise. Uh, and I'm also saying that I'm not excluding the possibility that other clinicians could rightfully make an argument that he, he was higher up on the scale or even lower on the scale. Because, you know, um, there, it's, a, it's, a, it's a matter of opinion based on the way that you see this construct. And also, all of us would not be able to truly make the statement because we haven't assessed him and asked for him to provide his consent to say such things. And everything that we're basing our opinion about Trump is on um, things that are in the media, which could uh, all or lots of it be completely false <laughs> or cherry-picked at the very least. So anyway, that's what I'm going to say. Again, Goldwater rule, unethical to diagnose uh, people from afar for a lot of reasons. Namely, you need informed consent from your clients. You need to uphold confidentiality. You need to use proper assessment procedures, and you need to act within your competence. So uh, we cannot diagnose any, any president uh, from afar or any famous person from afar. And um, the Internet has a lot of extremely silly notions about what narcissistic personality disorder is that confuses the public and makes everyone think that they know how to use that, that term. And, and it influences a lot of clinicians. Like I, I said before in the other episode, um, and I was talking about this with some other clinicians recently, and they, they were all agreeing with this notion that you could go to, you can get a doctorate or a master's in mental, in a mental health field, psychology, family therapy, counseling, social work, psychiatry, and you could spend one week on personality disorders and of the 10 or so personality disorders, one of them is narcissistic personality disorder. So I just want to reiterate that. So when I was in, when I got my master's, for example, uh, I took a class on psychopathology 
And we studied the entire DSM in one course. And uh, so one week was on anxiety, another weekend, another week was on mood disorders, and one of the weeks was on personality disorders. And one of the personalities that, 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 we, just, that we studied that week was narcissistic personality. And um, so I, as a 25-year-old uh, young incompetent clinician, uh, had just that amount of education on personality disorders by the time I graduated with my master's and was practicing and able to diagnose. Now, after I graduated, I studied it and got a lot of supervision. And, you know, so 99.999% of what I understand about narcissistic personality disorder, I did not learn in a class. So just because you're a licensed clinician doesn't mean that you understand what narcissistic personality disorder is because of this fact. There's just too many things to teach in, in graduate school. Then I went to get my doctorate in psychology, which meant I started over, got a whole other master's in psychology, and then extended that into a doctorate in psychology. And again, we took one class on psychopathology, and one week was on personality disorders, and one of those personality disorders was narcissistic personality. So having a doctorate, uh, there's too many things to talk about. Of the thousands of topics to teach in a doctoral program, um, one of them is personality disorders, and one of the personality disorders is narcissistic. So uh, just because someone is a clinician does not mean that they understand narcissistic personality, uh, let alone any narcissistic personality disorder. So, um, so the fact that clinicians don't get it and lay people don't get it is uh, not boggling to me. Also, as I talked about before, personality disorders are some of the weirdest things, some of the weirdest things. And I hope everyone's kind of getting that as I blab and blab and blab about this, is that personality disorders are weird. And it's a felt sense. It's almost like a wisdom that emerges from reading, talking, consulting, getting supervision, experiencing. It's, it's something that you, you sort of develop as a, as a paradigm over time. You don't need that with depression. You know, major depression uh, does require more than just understanding the criteria for sure. But the the learning curve is much, um, much less of a problem. Anyway, so let's go on to the next topic. All right, let's get into the causes. What is the cause of narcissistic personality disorder? Well, the short answer is we have no idea because we really don't understand the brain yet well enough to understand such questions. But there are some things that we can point to in terms of research. There are seemingly some genetic factors. Twins separated at birth are more likely to share personality traits, including narcissism. So there's, there appears to be some quote-unquote genetic factors um, that will interact with the environment to increase the likelihood of narcissism. But to me, the uh, and according to the research, the main factor is childhood mistreatment, emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, neglect, abandonment, chaos, all the bad things. And uh, f the worse the experience of childhood, and I, I emphasize the perception and experience of childhood. So if you are terribly mistreated by any objective measure, there's a chance that because of the way you perceived it or the way you experienced it, 
the mistreatment won't be to such a level that will cause uh, any kind of personality disorder or any traumatic reaction. Um, but the worse you are treated, the more likely you're going to experience and perceive it as terrible. Also, for uh, some people, they are just a really bad match for their parents. And although we wouldn't say they were mistreated by an objective measure of, um, you know, mistreatment, they, they, the children, for whatever reason, because of, uh, you know, being mismatched with their parents, they could experience things in a very difficult manner that could create narcissistic personality. So, um, so in general, what I'll say about mistreatment, the connection between mistreatment and narcissistic personality is everyone that I've seen with narcissistic personality has some, uh, some experience of mistreatment. And again, that can take the form of obvious overt mistreatment, like being raped by your father uh, for, um, you know, 10 years of your childhood or beaten by your mother for your entire life or abandoned by your parents and left in an orphanage for five years. Oh, um, those kinds of things. But also mistreatment can take more subtle forms like um, your parents work a lot or they um, smoke pot every night or they drink alcohol every night or they are very distant. They're, they're there, but they're distant. Um, they might be narcissistic themselves or just slightly narcissistic or something, uh, but have very functional lives and seem to be very good parents. So there's, there's overt and subtle. Um, in my experience, the more overt forms of mistreatment will create more severe cases of narcissistic personality and uh, more subtle uh, forms of mistreatment will create people lower on the spectrum. Uh, for example, Josh Powell, the uh, man who I talked about in the other episode in which he uh, killed his wife and then later killed his two children and, and himself, uh, his father was um, likely a, a sexual predator for, of children and likely abused Josh Powell himself. So there are um, so in my experience, whenever I come across someone, high on the scale, it's pretty obvious where that personality disorder emerged from. However, when you have people who have more subtle, you know, less, you know, say, below 30% on the narcissism uh, spectrum scale, it's hard to tell, it, you know, you can't point to obvious mistreatment in their childhood, and usually. Um, sometimes you can, obviously, but um, sometimes you can't. So specific childhood profiles that I've seen are parents who are both neglecting and overly praising. So parents who neglect their child, but are also, uh, so, shall we say, pathologically praising of the child. So the, the parents might be really, really distant or maybe even narcissistic themselves, really into themselves. They don't have enough time to, or the, the maturity to really love their children and notice their children because they're noticing themselves too much. Um, or the parents are abandoning meaning that the parents will disappear or they'll be addicted or they'll divorce and leave their children or, or some parents just pick up and leave. Some parents, uh, you know, um, mothers and fathers will, for whatever reason, they'll just, they'll just leave their children with some, with an un uncle or a, 
or another parent or something. Um, so there's that part of it and the neglecting part of it. Um, and it can be varying in degree along with the parents actually, or people giving the child a lot of praise, uh, you know, Oh my God, you're, you're the smartest, most beautiful, the most, um, you know, you're the coolest kid. You dress the coolest. Uh, you're so much better than your classmates. You're so much smarter. You're so much more mature. You're going to amount to things that your friends won't amount to. Or the opposite of this or the, the counter or the, the thing that will go along with this is, oh, my God, everyone in the world is stupid. Our family is the only ones who know what's happening. Um, that kind of thing. Also, potentially lack of uh, firm boundaries, like uh, being a child themselves, the parents might be, which elevates the children to the level of a parent. And then the child has this uh, narcissistic notion that they are special, that they're, uh, even though they're only seven years old, they're already that of an adult because the way that the parents treatment treat them and the way the parents act themselves. But again, deep down, the child feels inferior and worthless and unlovable. But there's a defensive shell of feeling superior that distracts them from this deep emptiness. So that's one general profile that I've seen before. Another is parents who were themselves narcissistic and chaotic. They might be musicians or actors or, um, I don't know, uh, high up in the corporation and that's important to them or activists or something. And they're immature in a lot of ways and they, they aren't really there for their children as parents should be. They might get divorced. They might have a lot of um, relationships, you know? So uh, one profile might be like the parents are uh, young when they have their daughter, they are still involved in a lot of drinking and, drugging and they have a volatile relationship. Um, they're not abusive necessarily to their, to their daughter, but, um, but they don't really pay much attention to her and they don't really reflect her. And they, they kind of just want her, they want the daughter to fend for herself even at a young age. And, um, they're inconsistent with their attention when they're in a good mood, they pay some attention to the child, and when they're in a bad mood, they're just like, look, you know, they're, they're not very good with their responsibilities, the parents. And they're generally chaotic. They get divorced, and they start having relationships with other people and um, narcissistically expose their child, their daughter, to these other dating relationships, which, again, is um, disruptive attachments to the child. Um and uh, this, and the child grows up, the daughter grows up feeling like, well, my parents aren't real parents. They're more like friends to me. And um, also, the which makes the child feel unlovable and not worthy of proper parenting and boundaries. Um, while the parents are also modeling how to live by being very narcissistic. So the child over, over time resorts to narcissism, but also is being modeled narcissism. And over time, the child will develop a defensive structure of narcissistic personality. The third and last profile that I want to point out, and again, these are just three common profiles that I've seen. There, there are other profiles for sure. But um, the, the third and last one I want to describe that I've seen a lot is 
parents who are highly chaotic and the child discovers that charm and manipulation are ways that they can be safe in the world. The, the parents are often suffering from addiction. They might give the child up to foster care sometimes, uh, but maybe not. And the child is in a state of extreme chaos growing up and feels, again, unloved, inferior, and, and really unsafe in the world, feels very unsafe. That's, that's an important element for the child to experience in order for them to develop this type of narcissism. And the child bumps into a lot of people, a teacher at school or um, a friend of a friend of their parents. You know, maybe there's a lot of friends coming over to the house or they end up in the system, in the foster care system, and they're, they're meeting several foster parents or other foster kids. And this child learns that in order to be safe, they have to resort to things in order to you know, establish safety because there's so much uncertainty and chaos and and danger in the world. And so they learn that adults are actually fairly easy to manipulate and that people are fairly easy to manipulate. And over time, they figure out that a combination of manipulation and charm is the best strategy because charm makes it easier to manipulate people because people don't realize they're being manipulated and they actually like you. So um, they don't necessarily resort to intimidation and hostility uh, at the beginning. They certainly are capable of that. But they, throughout their life, um, will recognize even to themselves that they uh, need to resort to charm and manipulation in order to be safe. And sometimes they'll be labeled as master manipulators or psychopaths because they're using, um, you know, their glib and their charming and, um, you know, they're like the Eddie Haskells of the world. Um, but really they're narcissistic and, and they're, they're, terrified deep down is the thing. They're suffering quite a bit and they lack a sense of self. They lack a sense of the ability to soothe themselves because they were never given the chance to internalize that mechanism because no one ever was there for them to show them how to cope and to help them cope. And so they rely on this charm and manipulation in order to, f to feel safe and worthy and stable in the world, which, you know, is an inherently distancing strategy and one that um, will not help in the long run. Um, so those are the three different childhood um, uh, presentations. So again, there seem to be some genetic factors, but really the main thing is, is early childhood development. Also, there are cultural factors. When you live in a culture that emphasizes, emphasizes appearance and lack of connection with other people, and emphasizes doing well in school and sports and this kind of thing, then that's, you know, I would imagine somewhat of an influence on the family and on the child. But again, it's mainly childhood mistreatment. Um, all of us, for the most part, grow up in a society that encourages quote-unquote narcissism, but the vast, vast majority of us are not suffering from narcissistic personality. Again, according to uh, prevalence rates, a consensus uh, understanding in the field is that, you know, it's somewhere around one or 2% of our population suffer from the disorder at some point in their life. Um, so it's, it's not very common is the thing. Um, so again, childhood mistreatment that makes the child feel unloved, unworthy, and also doesn't give the chance for the child to 
develop normally with regards to their own narcissism and, and their own sense of who they are, the sense of their self, and they don't develop in a healthy manner. So they lack this ability to soothe themselves in a functional way, and they have a defensive structure that props up a false, grandiose self and uh, imposing that on other people to protect them from the despair and loneliness and emptiness within them. Okay, so let's go on to the next section here. Okay, so let's talk about narcissistic personality disorder and how it compares to borderline and how it compares to histrionic and how it compares to antisocial and how it compares to complex PTSD. This, as with the rest of this presentation, is all my opinion, and so some people might disagree with this. But uh, I am presenting probably uh, what's considered to be consensus among, ec among experts. And um, uh, so, you know, but just know that other people might have a different point of view on the philosophy of personality disorders. In my opinion, and in my experience, and my understanding of the constructs, narcissistic, borderline, and histrionic are almost identical. In fact, research has found that of the people who have narcissistic and or, border, or, or borderline, 25% of them will have both. So, uh, you know, does that mean that they have both, or does that mean that they're, they're the same thing and just different uh, types of the same thing? Or is it a spectrum or, you know, there's just so much overlap. So for me, I don't really differentiate between narcissistic borderline histrionic and even to some extent complex PTSD. Um, and also it should be noted, as I've talked about before, that culture plays a role in how we interpret whether or not someone's narcissistic or borderline. We tend to associate masculinity qualities with, with narcissistic and with feminine qualities with borderline. So, you know, maybe we're just looking at different gender presentations of the same issue. Also, all of these conditions have the exact same genesis. I mean, some people will... Uh, claim that, you know, there's slight differences in the childhood upbringing of people with these various different conditions. And yeah, I can, and I'll get into that a little bit. But for the most part, those are really hard things to measure. And in my experience, uh, every person with these disorders have uh, basically uh, the same elements in their childhood, you know, just lots of mistreatment, abuse, neglect, and at lower levels, um, just chaos and not enough uh, good parenting when you're young, very distracted parenting. So um, so the way that I conceive of these disorders, and I'm leaving antiso and antisocial to some extent, uh, is sort of uh, close to this. That's why it's cluster B personality disorders. They put them all in the same area. Um, the, I, I keep them, I, I basically think of them as all the same thing because they all have the same genesis, but that the individuals are coping slightly differently with the same problem. Uh, so, um, you know, it's like when you're driving on the road and suddenly there's a car accident in front of you and all of a sudden you're about to hit a car because all these cars are spinning out of control. And you'll, you'll find that people have different, different reactions to that. Some people will freeze 
and they'll just crash into the car in front of them. Some people will swerve right. Some people will swerve left. Some people will slam on the brakes. Some people will start praying to their God or something. You know, there's lots of different ways of coping with something that is very difficult. Well, that's what these different personality disorders or categories are to me is they're all different coping strategies with a very difficult situation. With narcissistic, the coping uh, style is I will make sure that I am superior to other people so I don't need others and so I can't be hurt by others. There's a constant feeling of emptiness, inferiority, loneliness, and not being good enough. And thus, they are frequently signaling their specialness and rage against notions of not being special in an attempt to get people to see them as special so they don't have to feel, um, so that they can feel safe and they can feel loved. But of course, that backfires and perpetuates the feeling of inadequacy and inferiority and emptiness. They um, will tend to make others feel unsafe and small in this process. And in extreme cases, they tend to be toxic people that are very frequently hurting other people around them, commonly through emotional abuse, but other kinds of abuse. And um, they're suffering, but their suffering is often not very overt. Um, so people with narcissistic, it's, it's not always very noticeable that they're suffering because they're so... Uh, careful to not reveal even to themselves that they have vulnerability borderline the the statement that they learn the coping strategy they develop early in life is i will make sure that people will be close to me so they won't hurt me and they have a constant feeling of emptiness and of people abandoning them and thus accusations of mistreatment to alert others to their pain so that others will change their ways and take care of them so that they can feel safe and loved. But of course, this backfires and perpetuates the feeling of people moving away. These people tend to make other people feel unsafe and, and um, super appreciated sometimes and super uh, underappreciated in other times, right? So that's the, this tendency of when, when, when they have the notion that you are a safe person, which you actually have to spend a lot of energy on, then they will shower you with compliments and with feeling uh, helpful. But as soon as you give any hint that you're moving away, even though you might not be moving away from them, they will become very hurt because of their traumas, and then they will attack. In extreme cases, they tend to be highly dysfunctional in their lives, highly emotional, highly suicidal, and very overt suffering. You, you typically will know, uh, I mean, unless you're just a coworker of someone with borderline, but... Um, if you talk with someone who is, uh, has a severe borderline, it will become clear that they're suffering. Histrionic, the coping strategy that is developed early in life is, I will make sure that people will notice me so they won't ignore me and abandon me and hurt me. These people are constantly feeling empty, as with the other personality disorders, and uh and the flavor of their emptiness is that they're, they're invisible and they don't matter and that they're, they're not being seen. So they're frequently walking around in, in a constant state of feeling like they're not getting enough attention. And thus, they frequently look for affirmations that people are paying attention to them, that people see them and that they matter and that um, they're, 
therefore safe and loved as a result. But of course, all of this grasping for attention backfires and makes people actually ignore them. They, people with histrionic tend to make others feel unsafe, similar to other personality disorders. But another thing that they tend to do is they try to make people uh, feel attracted to them. And they try to make pe- people just um, want to please them, which was, is really um, a feature of all of these. Uh, narcissistic, borderline, histrionic, all three of these personality uh, uh, types will tend to make people feel unsafe in this very subtle way that other people can't really figure out why they feel unsafe. And they will also make other people feel like it's very important. You'll, if you're around someone with these disorders, you'll, you'll have more of an urge to please them than you will with other people because you just sense this urgency and, and you'll, they have a way of unconsciously making people feel unsafe around them. And they have a way of rewarding those people if the other people please them, if that makes any sense. Um, in extreme cases with histrionic, they tend to be similar to people with borderline in that they're highly emotional and suffering overtly. With antisocial personality disorder, the coping strategy developed early, early in life is, I will make sure that people don't matter to me, so I won't care if they hurt me. There's um, early in life a fundamental failure of parenting, more so than with the other personality disorders. The other personality disorders, there had to have been some sense of love and attachment. Uh, but with, for people with antisocial, for whatever reason, there just wasn't a sense of that love and attachment. There, and so they grow up with a constant feeling of weakness and vulnerability to predation, you know, to, to being the victim of someone else. And so they develop a, a preemptive predation behavior on others and a preemptive dominance over others to protect them and protect the self. And so um, also to garner possible attention and, and love and uh, attachment from other people. Of course, all of this preemptive predation on others and preemptive dominance and control on others backfires and makes people run away from them. Um, or uh, you have to become extremely dom. If you have antisocial, you have to become very dominant over other people and keep them close physically, but emotionally they've, they've left you a long time ago. Uh, people with antisocial tend to make others feel unsafe and in danger. And again, as if you need to be pleased um, people with antisocial tend to be, uh, tend to not be aware of their frag- their fragility. Uh, people with borderline narcissism and histrionic in their bad moments, they will know that they're fragile. They'll know that they'll, they'll, there'll be times when they f- will feel extremely empty. People with borderline narcissistic histrionic people with antisocial don't necessarily have that. Th- there might be times when they're, they feel empty, but it doesn't bother them as much. And in extreme cases for antisocial, they tend to be heavily involved in the criminal justice system, frequent crimes, violence, they're unrepentant, unremorseful, and they're extremely harmful to people around them. Okay, what about complex PTSD? Well, to me, the way that I conceive of it and the way that some a minority of clinicians are starting to see it is that complex PTSD is just another version of borderline narcissistic and histrionic. And perhaps that all four of these things are on some kind of a spectrum. 
complex PTSD is very similar to the uh, to histrionic borderline and narcissistic, narcissistic, particularly borderline, in that they have affect regulation problems. They tend to get angry more often. Uh, they are easily hurt with their feelings. They have an extremely negative self-concept. They feel worthless. They often feel guilty. They have interpersonal problems. They're uh, prone to not be very close to other people. They tend to seem distant and not care. They feel disconnected and they feel empty. So people with complex PTSD, very, very similar to, to narcissistic and borderline and histrionic. But complex PTSD does not have uh, features of these personality disorders in that there's not frantic uh, efforts to avoid abandonment. Um, people with complex PTSD tend to uh, not see people in all good, all bad terms. Um, they tend to have a little bit more of a sense of who they are, meaning that um, th they have inner resources to, to soothe themselves. They're not as impulsive. They tend to not involve themselves in uh, non-suicidal self-injury. Um, they have uh, less mood swings. They don't seem to have that much of a temper, and they're not at higher levels prone to paranoia and dissociation the way that people with borderline are. For me, I don't really differentiate between borderline narcissistic, histrionic, and complex PTSD, uh, like I said, um, with with many clients that I work with who have one of these, really all four labels could fit for them. And it helps for me to know the elements. You know, it, like if I'm talking to someone and I'm like, oh, they seem to be in this category of borderline narcissistic histrionic complex PTSD, uh, which is the main feature that they have? Are they mostly histrionic? Are they mostly narcissistic? Are they mostly borderline? Um, it does help for me to understand that, but really the treatment is this is very similar, and the transference countertransference tend to be similar. In fact, I might even clump in their passive aggressive personality disorder as well. Uh, there's a lot of similarities there. Um, antisocial personality disorder is different fundamentally because they actually do lack empathy for other people. They don't have impaired empathy. They actually just don't have empathy, and borderline narcissistic histrionic. They have empathy, but they uh, it's impaired, and they're distracted to such a degree that it's hard for them to access it, and they have, an, like I said, an immature sense of empathy. But with people with antisocial, uh, many of them just don't even have it. You know, s people with psychopathy, there's, there's nothing there to encourage. When you have someone with narcissistic, you can actually, if you can get them to calm down, if you can get them to feel safe, if you can get them to recover somewhat. There is empathy deep down. It's, it's immature and it's fledgling, but it's there. Um, but people with antisocial, you know, they, they generally don't care about relationships. So there's no foundation to stand on in therapy. There's, and there's no real reason for them to change, right? Cause they're, they're mostly just thinking about themselves. Whereas narcissistic people, their defense is a very elaborate, pervasive personality of grandiosity and not caring about other people. But underneath that is a deep, deep need for other people. So, uh, so that's my experience, but I'm, I'm guessing there are people with antisocial personality disorder who are perhaps lower on the spectrum who are reachable. And also people with antisocial personality disorder can benefit from therapy. I'm not saying they can't, um, in that they can learn how to live a more functional life. They can, they can learn how to live even though they don't have empathy. There's, there's plenty of people who have, 
uh, worked really well in therapy. But in terms of actually healing their psychic wounds, there's not enough of a relationship to use in therapy to really help them change their personality, unless, again, they're lower on the spectrum, which, you know, many people are. But uh, antisocial is not my special is not my specialty, so uh, maybe I think differently if um, I was um, if it was a specialty of mine. Maybe people who specialize in antisocial might disagree with what I'm saying, but yeah, you know, this is my experience. So when I come across someone who has antisocial, which is actually extremely rare, by the way, um, it I don't have as wonderful as a prognosis as I do when I treat someone with borderline narcissistic, histrionic, or complex PTSD, I know that I'm in for a bumpy ride with um, borderline narcissistic, histrionic, but by no means am I, am I uh, worried. I'm just like, okay, this is going to get bumpy. There's going to be some transference. There's, there's going to be some counter-transference. It's going to get interesting. Uh, there's going to be some relationship ruptures that I can't avoid. And this is going to be tough, but it's worth it to me. Whereas with any social, I don't have that attitude so much. But again, it's not my specialty. All right, let's go on to the next section here. Okay, let's talk about movies that depict narcissistic personality disorder. Again, I, this is a you know broken record, but there's a lot of bad information on the internet. There are a lot of movies that are identified as good examples of narcissistic personality disorder that are really not. Um, mostly because there's really not a lot of good movies about a accurate depiction of narcissistic personality disorder, because I'm guessing it's not a very interesting thing to depict. So there's that. I think Borderline, for whatever reason, uh, is more entertaining in a screen depiction, PTSD, um, you know, those kinds of things. But, and also, like I've been saying this whole time, broken record, most people don't understand narcissistic personality disorder, so they um, have a hard time depicting it, right? So in on the internet, some movies that you'll often see are What About Bob with Bill Murray and uh, Richard Dreyfuss. They're claiming that, what, that the Bill Murray character is a good example of narcissistic personality disorder, and no, that's not accurate. You know, maybe like Borderline, but... Honestly, this is a comedy. It's an absurd character. And um, it's almost like a sarcastically um, a preoccupied, attached person. So it's not a good example. Also, I read some people saying that um, articles claiming that Gollum or, um, you know, Smeagol on Lord of the Rings is a good example of someone with narcissistic personality disorder. This is really absurd. I really have no idea how you get that from Gollum. Um, you know, more like dissociative identity disorder, if anything. But, um, but really, you know, this is a magical situation. He's been infected by a ring. It doesn't really have anything to do with psychology, so to speak. But anyway, there's a lot of other movies that have been identified. Again, not good examples. I mean, maybe examples of quote-unquote narcissism, but um, not of narcissistic personality disorder. After reviewing a lot of different movies and thinking about it, the best that I can think of is There Will Be Blood. This is directed by, movie by, directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, who also directed Boogie Nights, Magnolia, Punch Drunk Love, et al. Um, bo really both characters, you could say, the Paul Dano character and the Daniel Day-Lewis, but mainly the Daniel Day-Lewis character. 
because he's, a, he's attracted to an occupation that will allow him to gain power and wealth by being one of the first people to prospect oil. He wants to become an oil man. And he puts himself at great risk to become successful. And he's obsessed with crushing his, his competition. And the key is, is that he's never really happy, and you can tell. And he's never really in a relationship, except with this adopted son. But it's more instrumental than a real parental love. It's more like a, a narcissistic parent being in a relationship with a son. I mean, he cares for a son, and he does good things for him. So that's another part of this, is that the Daniel Day-Lewis character, he's not universally an asshole. There are times when he's fine, and he actually does caring things for his son. But ultimately, that relationship, you realize that other things are, his defensive structure will override his love for his son, particularly in the end when his son grows up and decides to assert his needs just slightly. And the Daniel Day-Lewis character, the father, uh, not only doesn't like it and expresses that, but just completely rejects his son because of this and insults him and emotionally abuses him and just makes this mountain out of a molehill. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis is moody. He has a big problem with humiliation, and he's very envious of the bigger oil companies. And he's really obviously suffering. You can really tell in There Will Be Blood that the Daniel Day-Lewis character is suffering. Uh, he's not just like reveling in his narcissism, like, yay, look at me. You, you, you get a deep sense that this man is not happy. He hates people. He has difficulty with empathy. He believes he wants to make enough money to get away from everyone, but that's just a delusion because, um, you know, it's, it, he eventually does achieve that. He becomes super rich, has the mansion on the hill, doesn't need to be around anybody. But again, he's still miserable. He's still a miserable person, and he treats other people miserably. Extremely realistic depiction of a particular style of narcissistic personality because he's, one, narcissistic, two, very li- he can be very likable at times. Um, and, I mean, he's the main character, and you're sort of pulling for him in, in some ways. And he's also extremely unhappy and extremely insecure. And you can really, you really get a sense for how thin his skin is, uh, particularly in that scene when they're at the restaurant and the other oil company men, the other oil men from the other oil company are in the restaurant. He can't just sit there and be quiet. He has to go on the attack. And it's this super cringy scene where he's being just a total baby and, and just um, uh, trying to get into a verbal uh, back and forth with these oil men. And the other oil men are just like, okay, you know, nice talking to you. You know, it's okay. You know, no big deal. Like, leave us alone, please. And you just see the difference between an oil man who is narcissistic and an oil man who is, who has a normal personality structure. This is an extreme example. I would put him in the like 80% range. Other good examples are American Psycho. It wouldn't be a Psychology in Seattle episode if I didn't honor Umberto's love of this movie. Uh, it's a it's a good enough representation, but again, it's it's a comedy, so it's not super realistic. Plus, you know, it completely goes off the rails at the end, and it's possibly delusional at the end. But it's a good enough depiction because you get a sense that like, this is movies directed by Mary Heron. Uh, Christian Bale plays Patrick ba- Bateman. Patrick Bateman is completely consumed with how things look to other people. 
He gets extremely angry when he's outdone by others, like when his business card is seen as not as good as other people. His relationships are very shallow. He's extremely interested in his physical appearance. He doesn't seem to care about other people. But you also get the sense, particularly as the movie progresses, that he's deeply suffering, that he is not happy with himself. Uh, and again, that's, that's a key element of understanding of narcissism, is that just below this, this propped-up, fake, grandiose self is deep, deep, unending suffering and no ability to soothe the self. Another movie is The Master, again, directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. I think we might be able to derive some kind of thing about Paul Thomas Anderson's personality himself, since he's, since he's so good and maybe a little obsessed with depicting narcissistic personality disorder. Um, this The Master is basically a slightly askance fictionalized depiction of L. Ron Hubbard of Scientology. Uh, the 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 L. Ron Hubbard character is played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, and Hoffman's character needs admiration frequently. He's really good at getting admiration. He's good at manipulating other people. He's very aggressive when he's criticized. He and, and he even creates a cult around him to worship him. And like with other narcissists who run cults, like Charles Manson or. Um, David Koresh. I, I haven't studied Koresh, but I think there's a movie coming out about him, so maybe I'll do an episode about him sometime soon. But of the Waco, Texas um, ATF standoff situation. Uh, but the Philip Seymour Hoffman character in The Master, he keeps upping his uh, ante because he needs to continue to get more and more narcissistic supply. Jim Jones might have been like this as well. I mean, these are extreme cases where you have, um, you know, severely pathological people. But essentially what happens is, you know, okay, I get a little bit of people, you know, Charles Manson, as I was talking about in the other episode, it's like, he is a musician. He gets people listening to him, gets him a little bit of narcissistic supply. But that only lasts so long, even though people are still praising him for his music. So he has to up the ante. He has to get people to listen to him preach. And he, and he, gets, he gets a charge from that. It's like, oh, okay, that, this, is, this is really feeding my narcissistic supply, which allows me to not notice the fact that I feel empty and alone and, and inferior on the inside. But eventually, you habituate to that level of narcissistic supply. And so the Philip Seymour Hoffman character in The Master, he keeps upping the ante. And eventually, he's, uh, he, he creates this commune on a boat in the ocean because he can totally control everyone and make sure that they believe everything that he wants to believe. Another movie is The Talented Mr. Ripley. This is a wonderful movie. It's, it's really one of my favorite movies of all time. Directed by Anthony Minghella, who also directed Cold Mountain, The English Patient. Matt Damon plays the character of Tom Ripley. You could also say that he's not only on the narcissistic personality spectrum, but maybe the borderline spectrum to some extent. But he, the Tom Ripley character is a, an excellent depiction of someone with narcissistic personality disorder. He is of low class and he he makes a fake uh, persona so that he can rise within the high class world to be close to special people he finds the most grandiose 
um, special people around and tries to be close to them, tries to be them. He lies. He becomes aggressive when his lies are detected and he's good at manipulating other people. But again, deep down he is suffering and you, you get that sense, particularly by the end of the movie that Tom Ripley is a deeply suffering, uh, um, you know, low self-esteem person. Uh, he gets some narcissistic supply, but ultimately it doesn't actually make him feel any better. And so he's, he's constantly trying to climb this ladder, but it's not really, he, he's never really satisfied. And every t- you know, whenever I watch this movie, I'm just thinking, you know, Ripley, just, you know, hang out with people in your own realm and just try to have a good life. But he can't do that because he's running from this deep sense of inferiority and this deep sense of low self-esteem and he can't soothe himself. At the end of the movie, he has this breakdown in which he, he feels like nothing. And there's this moment, this beautiful moment where I, I think he's basically decided, spoiler alert, that he's going to kill someone because they know something about him that will uh, challenge his ability to prop up this fake self. And so he, uh, he's in a crisis point and he's like, Oh my God, am I really going to purposely kill this person? And he confesses. Cause I think he's like, well, I can say anything to this guy cause he's, I'm about to kill him. And he says that this is beautiful speech. You can go on YouTube and see it. But, and, and Matt Damon is just a master um, actor in this situation. And he says the line, it's better to, you know, I thought it'd be better to be a fake somebody than a real nobody. It's better to be a fake somebody than a real nobody. That is the crux of narcissistic personality disorder. And he's willing to even kill in the end to uh, keep his fake self propped up. And you can tell that he's not a, he's not a psychopath because he does actually care about other people, but he's so desperate for this grandiose self. He's just, he's suffering to such a degree that he's, he'll allow that need to override his uh, ability, his natural empathy and compassion for other people. As he murders, he is clearly suffering and, and busted up on the inside. Psychopaths, sadistic people tend not to be busted up on the inside. They tend to just be like, well, you know, they deserve it. No big deal. You can really tell that Tom Ripley is, is busted up on the inside about murder, uh, murdering people, particularly people that he, he loves and cares about. So this is a, a good, a wonderful presentation of that struggle on the inside between empathy and needing to prop up that fake self. Now, I want to point out that all these characters, Patrick Bateman, uh, the, the L. Ron Hubbard fictionalized person, Tom Ripley, and Daniel Day-Lewis in There Will Be Blood, these are really extreme cases of narcissistic personality and particular cases. And if you watch or, you know, if you read things on the internet or even listen to people lecture about narcissistic personality, you can walk away with the misconception that people with narcissistic personality are very are very dangerous, are murderous, and prone to psychopathic behavior. And certainly, they, they can result in that, like in the Tom Ripley character. But that is not 
you know, the vast, vast, vast majority of people, the vast, vast, vast majority of people with a narcissistic personality are not violent, are not murderous, are not criminals. They're uh, people who work at a, you know, they work at Microsoft, they work at Antioch, they um, are in the government, and, you know, they never murder anybody, but they do emotionally abuse people around them typically. So um, just make sure that we understand that. All right, let's go on to the next section. All right, let's talk about the types of narcissistic personality. There are various typologies that have been proposed over the last several decades because narcissistic personality disorder encompasses a number of disparate personalities, in my opinion. And so it's hard to understand this disorder uh, as a uniform thing. And so there's been a lot of different types that have been proposed. Uh, in the literature, you'll see a lot of different types. Uh, craving, which is someone who is needy and clingy. Paranoid, someone who is paranoid about criticism. Manipulative, someone who is intimidating, deceptive, and bullying. Phallic, someone who is in love with their body and appearance. Unprincipled, someone who is like a con man. Amorous, someone who is uh, using seduction and sex. Compensatory, someone who has extremely low self-esteem. Elitist, someone who gains their narcissistic supply by being elite in their cultural group. Fanatic, uh, someone who believes that they're a god and that they, uh, they might also have paranoia, someone like Charles Manson. Exhibitionistic, someone who wants people to look at them. Closet, someone who um, is special by association with other people. Toxic, someone who attacks others to make them feel better or to make other people feel inferior. Malignant narcissism, you'll hear this one often talked about on the internet, but there's a lot of bad information on the internet, including Wikipedia. Coined by Otto Kernberg in 1984, uh, he saw this as, as a spectrum, perhaps at the upper end of narcissistic personality as malignant narcissism, but you could argue against that. Another type, cerebral, someone who uses intelligence, intellect, and knowledge to gain narcissistic supply. Somatic, someone who uses their body, their looks, and their sexuality. But let me present a more common in the more serious, better literature regarding the different uh, types. So they're, they're all kind of... There's a lot of different words for these two different types. Um, and so I'm going to present... A number of them. But one in the literature you'll see sometimes is grandiose versus vulnerable. The grandiose person is someone who is arrogant, overt, they're assertive and aggressive. The, whereas the vulnerable narcissist is someone who is shy and who is covert and vulnerable, insecure, and often shameful. They're often aware of their sensitivity to criticism. So this is similar to another typology in the literature that people talk about, which is covert versus overt. So a covert, so essentially all these different types are that, are that are proposed in the more serious literature are basically two different types. You have people who are um, very uh, expressive, very obviously narcissistic, and then other people who uh, you wouldn't really detect overtly their narcissism, but deep down they have the same condition. Um, so the covert versus overt, 
the covert narcissist is inferior. They doubt themselves. They often feel ashamed. They feel fragile, but they're still searching for glory and power. They're still trying to build up a grandiose self, but they're really sensitive to criticism and, and they um, have a really hard time when there's even hints of criticism. They also have a really hard time depending on other people and really trusting them. They're often envious. They often have a shallow uh, commitment to their various jobs. They have superficial interests in things. They're chronically bored. They might imitate other people. This might be like a Tom Ripley person. They readily shift their values depending on the situation to gain favors. They might lie often. They might be very materialistic. Their ethics might be questionable and they might conflict with authority sometimes. Whereas the overt narcissist is very noticeable. They're very grandiose. They've preoccupied with fantasies of success. They, they, they feel entitled. They're seemingly very self-sufficient. This might be like a Daniel Day Lewis in there will be blood character. They have numerous relationships, but they're all shallow. They have a constant need for admiration. They have a lot of scorn for other people. They lack an empathy. They have a very difficult time participating in group activities. They value children over their spouse um, because of you know reasons of narcissism. They, uh, they can be charming. They're often very successful. And here's an important thing. They often work very hard in their jobs to gain admiration for other people. I mean, one, because they don't seemingly really care about relationships, but they get a lot of narcissistic supply by working extremely hard. So you'll see these people work inordinate amount of hours um, on, you know, their, their job. They can be very ambitious. They're often, you know, they're sometimes preoccupied with how they appear and they can act very modest at times, which is interesting because they know that that's a good trait to exhibit. And they sometimes exhibit questionable morals. Okay, so that's overt versus covert or grandiose versus vulnerable. Uh, another way of looking at this is the typology between hypervigilant versus oblivious. So hypervigilant is, you know, similar to covert, similar to vulnerable, or other, other words that are applied to this hypervigilant type is the depressed or depleted or thin-skinned or the shy type of narcissistic person because they, they pay a lot of attention to slights and criticism, and they're really sensitive to criticism, whether it's real or imagined. They can sometimes be very shy and very quiet and self-effacing. They will often direct attention to other people rather than themselves. They, they don't like being the center of attention, really. And they're really easily hurt, and they're very thin-skinned, and they're, they're prone to feeling humiliated. They're, they, they're, they often feel humiliated, is the thing. And so this person isn't very obvious as a narcissistic person, but, but they suffer from the same uh, disorder, and they have all, all the other narcissistic traits, lack of self. They can become rageful. Um, they uh, have difficulty expressing their empathy, all that kind of stuff. Whereas you have on the other side uh, of the typology spectrum is the oblivious, the thick-skinned, the arrogant, the entitled, and the overt. And these people really have little awareness of criticism because they don't really pay attention to other people. They can often be arrogant. They can come off, come off as arrogant. They can come off as aggressive. They seem to be very self-absorbed, and they really like being the center of attention. And again, they seemingly lack empathy. So these are the more obvious, um, you know, covert, 
thick-skinned, arrogant, entitled, overt, uh, oblivious kinds of narcissistic people. So um, I find that it's kind of interesting to think about the different types of narcissistic personality, uh, particularly uh, because the overt, uh, oblivious type, the thick-skinned type, is actually really easy to detect. Um, And so sometimes it's good to remember that there's this other side of narcissistic personality where they can actually be quite shy and they can be depressed at times and they can be, they're just more vulnerable and more um, aware of their emptiness. I might even say that the hypervigilant, thin skinned, shy uh, person who has narcissistic personality might be lower on the spectrum in some ways because there's less of a need to prop up this grandiose self and therefore their uh, their defenses don't have to be in complete denial of their vulnerability, whereas the oblivious, thick-skinned, arrogant, entitled, overt type of narcissistic personality is someone that perhaps is so desperate for the coping mechanism of narcissism that they need to completely mask themselves from the entirety of their vulnerability. So I don't know. But honestly, when I've treated people and assessed people, I don't usually think about them in terms of these two categories. Occasionally I do, but usually I can detect it and find that sometimes they have elements of both. So I don't know. The typology is fine, but I don't really use it that much. Another sort of typology to think about are for all people with narcissism that schema therapy has proposed or found three different modes that people with narcissism will exhibit. So, you know, at any given time, they're in one of three different schema modes. One is the lonely child mode. This is a uh, side of themselves, a mode that is often denied. They often don't express this, but they, uh, this is perhaps their core self, the lonely child mode. They, they feel vulnerable. They feel unloved. The, another schema mode is to the self-aggrandizer mode. This is when they're overcompensating for their lonely child mode, and they're frequently in this mode. And this is, you know, the quintessential narcissistic behaviors. Then we have number three, another mode, the last mode, which is detached self-soother mode. This is perhaps when they're alone, when they don't really have access to narcissistic supply, and they're cut off from any admiration from from other people, and they feel empty and bored. They just they don't have anything to entertain them. So they turn to something to soothe their their feelings of aloneness and boredom by using substances or sex or TV or fantasizing or something. So it it's also interesting. So not only different types of narcissistic personality, but we might look at different modes of all narcissism, the lonely child mode, the self-aggrandizer mode, and the detached self um, mode where it's hard for them to soothe themselves. Okay, so let's go into the history. All right, so history. I can't, you know, obviously in this um, podcast provide a full detailed history of narcissistic personality and its conceptualization. It's, you know, it's been since the 1800s that our field has been looking at it. And, you know, there's a lot of twists and turns, a lot of different ideas, Freud and all the people after him and all the different research and twists and turns, blah, blah. So, 
it's a it's a very interesting story, and uh, I'm going to try to summarize the major bits here. So we we have to go back to the origin of the term itself, which would have been 2,000 years ago. Ovid wrote about the myth of Nar- Narcissus. Narcissus um, was, I think, in the woods or something, and there's a wood nymph named Echo, and she fell in love with Narcissus. And but he he was too vain and he ignored her and she died of a broken heart. And the gods were very angry at Narcissus for not reciprocating the love of the of Echo, the wood nymph, and so the gods punished him. And he was punished to live by himself. Then he saw himself in a pool of water and he fell in love with his own image and he died from starvation because he couldn't stop stop looking at himself. Or other versions of the myth is he died from trying to kiss himself and he drowned. Uh, there, you know, there's various different versions of the myth. It's a spoken, a passed down through the generations, so there's different um, versions. Also, uh, some versions will say that after his death, near the pool of water, uh, he uh, died, and then a flower emerged from where he died, and then that flower is called Narcissus. So... Uh, fast forward uh, many th- hundreds of years later to 1898, we have Havelock Ellis. He was an English physician who studied human sexuality. He was the first to use this myth of Narcissus to describe the personality. He co-authored the first medical textbook in English on homosexuality in 1897. He also published things on transgender psychology. He introduced the notions of narcissism and autoeroticism. He coined the term autoerotic perversion, which was uh, the condition of only being able to be turned on by gazing at the self and fondling the self. Interestingly, he was also one of the first physicians to study psychedelic drugs. He was the author of one of the first written reports of what mescaline felt like in 1896 interesting person. He also unfortunately supported eugenics and served as president of the eugenic society. But um, many people uh, were into eugenics at the time, many moral people. The idea was, was that it was seen as a compassionate thing to, to consider eugenics and, and the practices a good thing for future generations. The, The idea was, is like, well, there's a lot of conditions medically and psychologically that are pa- seemingly passed down through the generations. And what if we just eradicated those conditions by uh, uh, using breeding techniques? Essentially, it's like, well, if someone has a condition, we have to prevent them from having kids so they don't pass on that trait to future generations. Um, you know, at first it was uh, compassion for fu- future generations, Um and obviously massively oppressive to certain groups of people. And then this was taken to its extreme bad um, extent with Nazism and um, all that kind of stuff. You know, now we know eugenics is inherently bad and we shouldn't be uh, talking about it at all. But the idea that, um, uh, you know, anyway, so, so Ellis was um, an interesting character. Later, other writers would turn the would coin the would coin terms like narcissist and narcissism. Uh, one year after Ellis wrote about narcissism in 1899, Freud wrote a letter to Fleiss, and in this letter we see that Freud 
was starting to use the term narcissism. In skipping forward about 15 years, Freud wrote a important, an important paper, a famous paper called On Narcissism, an Introduction. An introduction. Freud was going through a tough time at the time. World War I was brewing. Young and Adler had recently left his side, and there was a lot of infighting among his people. And um, so, you know, he was going through a tough time, and that seemed to be a backdrop to his uh, talking about narcissism. Narcissism became one of Freud's most seminal concepts. Many of our, idea, of our current ideas about narcissism are based on Freud's early work. But it was just a rough sketch of narcissism, and um, it was within his um, sort of idiosyncratic uh, theory at the time. But he laid out that narcissism was a developmental concept and also a relational concept. It's a, it's a normal developmental stage for children, the love of the self that later evolves through maturity to love other people. Um, but we still retain a fundamental love of the self. Just, just you know, it's just more mature as we get older. And, you know, we still basically see it that way today. There were some problems with his notion of narcissism at the time. He saw homosexuality as a form of narcissism, which essentially he was saying that homosexuality was an immature version of hom- of sexuality. But if you actually go back and read his paper and uh, you know other writing at the time in psychoanalysis about narcissism, it's in this super complicated Freudian lingo, which is difficult to understand uh, for people today. So um, you know, feel free to wade into that if you care to. Um, he apparently was never really satisfied with this paper on narcissism, and um, because really at the time he was drastically changing his theory and. So I think that's a out, outgrowth of that. After Freud wrote on narcissism in 1914, many in psychoanalysis started to think about it and write about it and talk about it. Alfred Adler, Otto Ronk, Jacobson, Karen Horney, Starolo, Cooper, Klein, Melanie Klein, Rothstein, Wilhelm Reich, Annie Reich, among others, all uh, chimed in about their own uh, understanding the further the understanding of narcissism and some slightly different from Freud, some within the Freudian concept. There was a lot of debate through the early part of the century about what narcissism was. Is it defined by its symptoms or character traits? Is it pathological? Is it normal? And people started referring to narcissism in a lot of different ways, basically having different definitions and and too many different, perhaps Uh, people were referring to it as a sexual perversion, a type of libido, a developmental stage, as I talked about an attitude related to self-esteem, a personality type. And as a result, many clinicians started to discard the idea altogether because it was just too all over the place. But then in the 1960s, two authors, uh, made it famous once again. Heinz Kohut and Otto Kernberg, they had different formulations of narcissism, perhaps incompatible formulations, but it was similar enough and definitely resonated within the uh, psychoanalytic community, but more broadly, the psychotherapeutic community. Uh, I think Kohut and Kernberg were actually describing different patient populations uh, which is often the case in our field when, when, when people disagree about 
terms and labels of personality. Sometimes they're just talking about two different things. Like some people will disagree about what ADHD is. And honestly, I think it's because people have different ideas of the sort of patients that they're that they're thinking about. And again, since these are non-scientific, uh, soft science designations, they're the two people can be right at the same time, and the two the two arguing people can have um, followers, so to speak. Um, so another is that uh, borderline is often described in different ways, and people will disagree about what borderline is, uh, even what nar- narcissistic is. Um, you know, when when you lack measurable markers like um, hard science markers, you'll have different people using the label for different people. Um, you know, for example, when people use the word liberal or when people use the word conservative, uh, what does that mean exactly? When people call Obama a socialist, you know, what does that what does that mean? Uh, so, you know, it just it just depends. And then the, sa- the same goes for narcissistic for Kohut and Kernberg. I think they were uh, different because they were just talking about different kinds of people, but close enough that um, people consider them similar. Um, so throughout the 1960s and 1970s. Um, Kohut and Kernberg really completely revised psychoanalysis in general, and uh, narcissism was a big part of that revision. Probably they were influenced by the dominant wave at the time in psychotherapy, which was humanistic, and uh, they both, Kohut and Kernberg, introduced what I would consider to be humanistic ideas into, into psychoanalysis. So Kohut's major uh, publication about this was in 1977, a book called Restoration of the Self. It's a pretty um, common book on therapists' bookshelves. I have a copy of it. Um, and out of this was created his theory, which is called self-psychology, which, again, provided a more sympathetic view of narcissism, a more empathetic view of psychotherapy, um, he basically, Kohut basically believed that narcissism is a result of not having parents who can be idealized. So the self idealizes the self instead of idealizing the parents, which is not the same as Kernberg's uh, idea. Um, but anyway, so Kohut, so, so again, just to be clear, Kohut um, believed that we need to idealize our parents. And through idealizing our parents, we develop normally. But if we can't idealize our parents because they're chaotic or abandoning us or abusing us, then we have to idealize the self instead as a defense. And this, you know, dysfunction carries, you know, into adulthood. I don't disagree with that formulation, but that metaphor doesn't uh, resonate with me as much as as Kernberg's. Um, Defenses for Kohut were thought of as not just um, reactions to the id, ego, and superego, which was what it, psychoanalysis typically uh, formulated it as such. But Kohut saw narcissism as actually supporting self-esteem and self-continuity. Um, there, was a, there was a lot of discussion of like the integrity of the self, and there wasn't a lot of talk about that prior in, in the field. Kernberg, um, I could describe his formulation of narcissism, but basically this entire two-part uh, talk on narcissism is is an extension of Kernberg's ideas. I'm not quite sure if I got it from him or not, because it's it's been 20 years of studying and thinking. So either we coincided on the same path, um, or 
I am completely just parroting everything that I've ever, or sort of a, a, talking about my elaboration of, of his ideas. I suspect it's a combination of the two. Um, I, you know, have been reading Kernberg in, in, uh, along with all the other uh, major figures about narcissism over the years. So it wasn't until I did this talk that I was like, you know what, I guess one could say that I basically am elaborating and um, sort of providing a, a slightly different version than Kernberg's point of view. Um, but when I say that, I also just imagine that it's, I don't know, it's a logical conclusion. I think Kernberg came to a logical conclusion based on evidence of attachment and defenses and the way that people operate. So I don't know. Um, so uh, fast forward to 1980. So this is after Koha and Kernberg have revised psychotherapy and the DSM three comes out and narcissistic personality disorder was included for the first time, um, directly influenced by Koha and Kernberg and Narcissistic personality disorders has been included in subsequent DSMs after that. It was almost removed from DSM-5 in 2013 in favor of a different system of labeling personality disorders, but it was uh, retained uh, because of the backlash from people saying that they would be upset if they did such a thing. Okay, but going back to the 1970s, it became a part of our culture, our American culture, the word narcissism. It was written about in several different ways. Um, the, the, the 70s were considered to be the me generation. Uh, actually, the, the baby, so the baby boomers came of age, came of adult age and dominance in our society in the 70s. And, and you know, they were in college in the 60s. And they were called the me generation. Uh, it's funny to think about that, right? That because, of course, if you ask people on the street, like who's the who's the me generation, who's the narcissistic generation, they'd all say millennials, right? But the baby boomers who were born during the war, during you know the forties, uh, were considered to be highly narcissistic uh, in the seventies. Um, in fact, the seventies was dubbed the me decade, you know, because the seventies there was a lot of there were a lot of self-improvement movements, self-actualization, self-awareness, self-esteem, self-fulfillment, self-help books, the human potential movement, finding yourself. Um, there was this huge increase in the 70s in marketing and, and consumption of things that involved the self or um, marketing to people to help them feel better, make them feel special, like the car that they drove or wearing makeup or the clothing that they um, war or the, the particular aftershave they used. It was all about individuality, expressing yourself. You know, it wasn't about fitting in prior to the seventies, the marketers would market, um, in a lot of ways to help people to fit in, you know, this is what everyone else is doing. You need to do this. But in the seventies, uh, you know, it's, it's been a slow sort of progression towards this. It's not like it was entirely that way in the past, but the seventies was seen as like, me, me, me. How can I be me? How can I dress like me? I don't want to dress like everyone else. I want to dress like me. I want a car that's like me. I want makeup that's like me. And, um, and, uh, you know, subsequent generations after that, Generation X, uh, Generation Y, Millennials, uh, what are they calling post-millennials? I don't know. Every generation is uh, seen as, quote unquote, the most narcissistic generation. Um, so, you know, let's look into that. Are, are we actually becoming more narcissistic?
There are lots of speculations on the Internet and in society around are we becoming more narcissistic? For many people, this is a uh, obvious yes. They talk about it as if, well, of course, we are becoming more narcissistic. Um, everybody seems to think so. Uh, millennials currently are the target of this claim. There's, you look on the internet, lots of pictures of people taking selfies, very cliche uh, sorts of pictures of you know, girls taking selfies. And it's like, oh, so narcissistic. Uh, lots of claims without any evidence. Um, you know, but we really need to look at the evidence. Um, and people have been saying this sort of thing throughout history also is another thing to think about going back to the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans, and I'm guessing other cultures probably had similar claims, but we don't have writings from all the different cultures of the past, but we do have from ancient Greeks and, and Romans. And I've never heard of a culture claiming that their youth were less narcissistic than they were. I mean, just think about that. So we can't be ever increasing our narcissism at a constant, like rapid pace since we, you know, started as a species. If, you know, if truly there would be fluctuations in narcissism, right? It would, it would go up, it would go down. And yet I've never heard of anyone claiming that young people today have less narcissism than we did when we grow up, when we grew up. I've never heard anyone say that. And yet how many times have I heard old people say, young people today are so stuck up on themselves and self-centered. And I find that people are reacting to things that they see on t TV rather than actual human beings. You know, a lot of people, when they're talking shit about young people, I, I, I often wonder, do you actually interact with actual young people? You know, are you just watching reality TV as a way of understanding different generations? You know, um, in real life, the vast majority of people, let alone teenagers, have a healthy view of themselves and they know where they fit in, in society. Most people have a normal, functional view of their specialness and are, are not narcissistic. But so the idea often goes is that we're, you know, we've been frequently moving away or, you know, as a society, we've been moving away from a collective agrarian lifestyle and moving toward a more individualistic, self-centered lifestyle. And yeah, uh, that could be said for sure. But that's not narcissistic personality, right? Um, those are different things as, as we've been talking about. Um, you know, the idea goes is that we now have all this free time and that means we can spend time on other things other than trying to feed ourselves and we can spend time on being famous and being adored by many people and we have a society that privilege, privileges fame over everything else along with being higher class and we keep pushing people towards lifestyles of isolation and independence which creates the need for connection um, but without an actual way of facilitating connection with actual human beings, it motivates us to become more narcissistic online to get attention on the internet instead of from live people. Um, and the other idea is, is that we become softer as a society. We, we pamper our children too much. Everyone gets a trophy. Everyone has high self-esteem and we're raising all these narcissistic people. But really, are we actually becoming more narcissistic? Um, should we turn to our feelings for an answer to that question? No, we should not be. Should we be turning to the internet for an answer to the question about whether or not we're becoming more narcissistic? No, we do not turn to the internet. We have to look at science, empirical observation. Okay, so let's look at the 
uh, research now. There, there are a number of studies in support of the hypothesis that we are indeed becoming more narcissistic. An often cited researcher is Twenge or Twenge and colleagues. There's a, a famous study from 08 in which they used this narcissistic inventory measure that puts you on a scale from zero to 40. And uh, they found that in 1980, people scored about 15 and a half on the scale from zero to 40. And in 25 years later, in 2005, people had uh, a score of two points higher at 17.5. They also found that on average, celebrities have an even higher score uh, by two points of, of the average people. So again, just to point out, a measure from zero to 40, in 1980, people scored about a 15, and two years later, or 25 years later, they scored about a 17. So, uh, you know, the effect size need to, needs to be taken into consideration here. Um, and I'll talk about that uh, measure in a second, because you can actually take a version of it online. Another study found that 80% of middle school students have higher self-esteem in 2006 than they did in 1988. So... Um, in the span of, what is that, 18 years, um, 80% of middle school students had had a higher uh, rating of their self-esteem. So that's you know what we would associate again, in the literature anyway with, with narcissism. Journal of Psychiatry 2008 study uh, found that among Americans who are in their 20s, uh, 9% had experienced narcissistic personality disorder at some point in their life. But among people who were over 65, so this study was looking at diff people of different age groups, and young people had been found to suffer from narcissistic personality disorder 9% of the time, whereas people 65 and older had experienced narcissistic personality disorder only 3% of the time. And this was a huge sample of almost 300, or sorry, 35,000 adults. And this involved face-to-face -face interviews. It wasn't just like an online survey. But I'll get more into the problems with this research in a second. Some would say that social media is to blame, and research has looked into that. A number of studies have found that people uh, who use a lot of social media are uh, inherently, or not inherently, but they're more narcissistic. Um, uh, for example, Bufardi and Campbell in 2010 found that a positive, they found a, a positive association between narcissism and uh, the amount of Facebook use that you have. Um, so people generally associate Facebook and other social media with narcissism, but this isn't true. If we're going to look at narcissistic personality, um, it's, it's not found in the literature. Um, the, so the problems with the research are thus. They are using a measure to measure what they call narcissism, but it's not narcissistic personality is the thing. Another word for these measures would be self-esteem in some ways. Um, so, uh, you know, for these measures, like they have questions where it's just like, um, I consider myself unique or something. Um, and as opposed to, I consider myself to be nothing special, or I consider my ideas to be pretty good, or, you know, I don't consider my ideas to be very good. So some of the questions are what we might consider to be more of a measure of healthy self-esteem than pathological narcissism. And to confuse the two is really problematic. Now, they're 
there's a Venn diagram of overlap, but they're really different things. And yet all these researchers are saying, um, therefore, everyone's more narcissistic. But you have to understand what type of what they mean by narcissistic. That's important to understand. So there's a lot of problems with the research, you know. Also, narcissism and narcissistic personality, these are constructs. They're things that we invent as a, as a field. They're not actual things. Like when you study carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, you actually just take a reading. You don't have to construct a definition of carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is, an, is a physical thing in our atmosphere, and so you just measure it, and you can see that you know it's increasing over time. And average, you know, world temperature, you just, you know, you just measure it and blah, blah, blah. I mean, I'm sure there's definitions in terms of like where you actually decide to measure and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, the point is, is that um, it's much more, much more of a hard science. When it comes to narcissism, self-esteem, these are not hard science things. And so you're, you're talking about something that we just invent, like the, the 40 point scale for, or the 40 point, yeah, the 40 point scale. Um, how much weight do you give to every question? What if you uh, took out some questions and added different sort of questions? You know, it's like, it's just people get together and they just decide these things. They're not like discovering carbon dioxide, for example. Plus, a lot of this research depends on self-report, which is just an awful way of trying to figure something out, right? You're asking people in 1980, how narcissistic are you? And, you know, in an, by asking them a number of questions. And then 25 years later, you ask people, how narcissistic are you? Well, you're going to, people of different times and are, are basically living in different cultures and their ideas of language and their interpretation of language and their tendency to hide certain aspects of their personality. I mean, it could be true that 25 years later, people are just more able to admit their narcissism, you know, as opposed to people in the past. I mean, who knows? Um, also, again, as I've talked about before, most studies involve college students who are in New England, and these are not representative of um, all Americans, let alone everyone in the world. And also, a lot of these studies find extremely small effect sizes. You know, they'll talk about significance, but really, um, that's a misleading word. Uh, what they really should be talking about is effect size. And also, again, what does it all mean to have these, even if it is um, valid, that uh, from 1980 to, 19, to, to 2005, there's a, a two-point increase in uh, quote-unquote narcissism? Is it... Is it self-esteem or is it narcissism, as I've been talking about? In some ways, when I see these figures of a two-point increase from 1980 to 2005, it could be interpreted as a huge win by our society because we want people to not feel like shit about themselves, right? And maybe we've gotten better as a society about not making people feel like shit, you know, how many people in 1980 felt good self-esteem about being queer? How many people in 1980 had good self-esteem about not being white? How many uh, girls in 1980 felt like shit because they were not a man? Well, um, you know, maybe as a result of all of our work of social engineering over the past number of years, that in from the span of 1980 to 2005, kids have higher self-esteems and they, and thank God, you know? And so is that what we're seeing? It's, it's just impossible to know. And, but of course the media doesn't talk about it this way. Also other studies just completely contradict, you know, contradict the, 
the find these other findings. They actually um, do not confirm the hypothesis. For example, trend trends in the whiskey <laughs> can't pronounce that and uh, Donalyn uh, in the Perspectives on Psychological Science, Volume Five, Number One. They looked at fifty thousand high school students over the span of a number of decades, and they found that there is no difference in narcissism from 1976 to 2006. So there are, there are, and there are other studies who find this, you know, they, they find that, nope, there's, there's been no increase in narcissism since, uh, you know, since we started looking at this sort of thing. So, um, and also I suspect that there are a lot of studies that didn't find a confirmation of, of our narrative that, we're getting more narcissistic and therefore they, and, and because they don't match the narrative, they don't get published or the researchers sort of fudge the data because they're trying to fit the narrative because they want to be interviewed on CNN about how we're becoming more narcissistic. If you come out with a study that says we're not becoming more narcissistic and that young people today are, um, in fact, some studies found that young kids, today are less narcissistic than we were in the 70s, than kids in the seventies. In eighties, and you know how many people want to interview them on the news, considering that the news is dominated by old people, right? Um, you know, we need the ability to make fun of young people. That's one of our favorite things to do. Um, so, after reviewing all the literature um, and seeing, you know, support for, support against, and even support for the idea that we're becoming less narcissistic, it's clear to me that the media and many psychologists are just cherry-picking particular studies that, that support the narrative that millennials are narcissistic and ridiculous. And here are some quotes that I found online, uh, you know, from respectable publications. Are we more narcissistic than ever? The answer is yes. Another quote, me, me, me. Are we living through a narcissistic epidemic? Another quote, According to new research, young people today are significantly more narcissistic than during the 1980s and 1990s. Unquote. Again, significance is understood. You have to look at effect size, which is, if anything, very small. Um, also, it's like, according to new research, uh, we're, we're actually less narcissistic. You know, How many headlines say that? Another quote here, millennials are more narcissistic than boomers and Gen Xers. This was actually said by a psychologist. Another quote here, what do Kanye West, Kim Kardashian, and Justin Bieber, Bieber have in common? Grandiose exhibitionism, exhibitionism, inflated self-views, superficial personalities, and shameless self-promotion. In that sense, they are just like millions of other, they are just like millions of their Facebook and Twitter fans around the world. Welcome to the age of digital narcissism. It's just gross to me. Um, it's, uh, it's ageism. It's um, mean, it's uh, misguided, wrongheaded, and not supported by the evidence. Uh, you know, it's just, it's awful to me. In a way, I consider it to be just a mass delusion that kind of follows us through the generations or some kind of mass transference that we have towards young people. You know, we're all collectively somewhat ashamed of ourselves, and we're, we're all collectively terrified of the fact that we're getting older. I mean, let alone dying and the anxiety of that, but we're also like, Oh, my hair's turning gray. Oh, I need reading glasses. Oh, I'm getting fat or, you know, whatever it is. We're just like, man, I wish I could go back to when I was 20 and I was thin and I was, you know, blah, blah, blah. We, you know, some of us don't have that, but many of us do. And, 
so, uh, you know, we, we find a way that to ridicule young people because we just hate them so much, you know, we're just like, Oh my God, all the selfies they're taking, you know? And to me, it's like, what's it to you? Why do you care if people take selfies? You know, um, as I was saying earlier, it's like, it's slightly racist too. It's like, it's kind of an Asian thing to take a selfie. And so, you know, um, and, and Asians are considered generally speaking to be less narcissistic than white Americans. So it's like, how can selfies and taking pictures of your food be more narcissistic, but associated with Asians who are supposed to be less narcissistic anyway. So all this silliness in the media and even among clinicians, I've been to conferences where keynote speakers in psychology and psychotherapy are getting up on the stage and claiming that millennials are more narcissistic. And I'm, and I, and this is before I did the deep dive on the research and I'm, and I, and I was like, Oh, interesting. But now when I look at the research, it's like, one, not only are there studies that say both or even the opposite, but also there are massive limitations to these studies. So it's just hard, hard to know. So all this silliness overshadows the reality that there are actual people suffering from actual narcissistic personality. It's not a fun disorder, as I've been talking about, right? There's people who are genuinely suffering. And here we are distracted by this, you know, this whole rhetoric around like, kids and their selfies. And it's like, you know, there's, there's, it'd be like if all we heard about, about eating disorders was, uh, I don't know, uh, narcissistic, um, celebrities who starve themselves too much like that. Like whenever we talked about eating disorders, all we did was talk about like, um, Fiona Apple. Like that's, that's all we talked about was Fiona Apple. And it's like, you know, there's actual people suffering from this and we should really be not uh, diminishing it by just having a picture of Fiona Apple or with narcissism, just showing Asians taking pictures of themselves. You know, I think we really should be understanding that people with narcissistic personality are really suffering and um, self taking selfies has nothing to fucking do with it And, and really stop shaming it. You know, these people are genuinely suffering. Okay, so what's the conclusion? Are we actually becoming no, more narcissistic? Well, based on the empirical evidence, um, and given the way that we've conducted research, research thus far, we just don't know the answer to that question. To, to, to properly assess this question and answer this question, we would have to assess samples uh, involving hundreds of people. We would have to get hundreds of people. If, it, you know, Let's just stick to the United States. We would have to take hundreds if not thousands of Americans around the country um, uh, of a particular generation, you know, like the baby boomers in the 70s. And we would have to uh, establish a uniform, a uniform conceptualization of narcissism, which doesn't exist. And we would have to have a totally consistent way of, of assessing and of evaluating narcissism over time, which also doesn't exist. We would also have to clearly establish a threshold of answering the question yes or no, or some sort of spectrum that we establish as, um, you know, from zero to 100 or something, which again, we don't have, because there's a lot of different spectrums and different ways of looking at narcissistic personality. So we'd have to establish a clear definition, which we've never had. And then we would have to uh, fully assess people, which would involve, as I've said, working with uh, compliant people who are willing to be assessed o- over the span of like a couple months. Um, we'd have to do that for a thousand, thousands of people around the United States. And then we'd have to establish some sort of average, uh, you know, level of narcissism 
of that group of people at that age, right? We can't, so, you know, that other study, it was like, we asked people who were 70 years old, a bunch of questions to try to determine if they've ever suffered from narcissistic personality disorder. It's like, you're, you're asking people to, to tell us if you've ever been narcissistic. Whereas when you ask 20 year olds, they give you a different answer. Well, it's because, you know, they're self-reporting. So you, you would have to have an outside unbiased, uh, you know, assessor or a group of assessors who actually assessed the reality of people's personalities, which again is subjective. But anyway, I could see that, you know, getting at the, getting to the question as to, are we being, are we, are we more narcissistic in the future uh, or in the past? And then we would have to periodically do this for the generations at the same age. So we'd, we'd have to take everyone who's not, who's 25 years old of that time and see, or everyone who's 40 or something like that. And then we would, we could compare the rates, but um, we haven't done that because it's too fucking expensive and it's impossible to do because we don't have a uniform way of measuring narcissistic personality. We have some measures that are, you know, they're interesting. They're not, they're not terrible, but they really need to be taken with a grain of salt. So if if I was to speculate and it's pure speculation, cause I have no data, I would, I would actually, so at first I was like, you know, I bet you we are getting more narcissistic as time goes on. You know, it just, it just seems like a logical thing. You know, we're, we're, um, we're, we're, we are more self-centered and this kind of thing. But actually, when I started really thinking about it, I actually suspect we're actually um, have less rates of narcissistic personality than we than we did in the past, because particularly among middle and upper class people, maybe maybe only middle class people, but people who have the privilege to raise their children well. I mean, right now we live in a society where the average middle class person has, um, a, a, you know, they, they work, um, regular hours, they have vacation time, they have, uh, the wealth to pay for Amazon to deliver things to their front door. They, um, have they they have you know they they just have a lot of resources and for the first time in history we, we are also having a lot fewer children right instead of having i mean it's one thing about doing genealogy in my family is that the norm up until uh, 50 years ago was to have as many children as fucking possible <laughs> you know it was like everyone in my uh, family lineage going back you know 100 years and prior every family had at least 10 kids you know, like it was rare if there was like five kids. And if it was five kids, it was usually because there was like famine or something happening. And so, um, and it wasn't unusual to have like 12, 15 kids in a family. That was the norm in the past. And so um, the the ability to actually pay attention to your kids, all your kids in a situation like that is, you know, uh, limited given that you there's just so many kids, right? Now, one could argue that, um, if you're living on a farm, there's less distraction and therefore you get a lot more attention from your parents and from your older siblings and stuff. I don't know. But at the very least, um, compared to 50 years ago, I'm guessing parents have been educated more about how to, how to love their children better 
Um, we have things in place. We have better health care, for example. We have better mental health care. And I suspect that our parenting overall, when you you know add up all the different factors, that our parenting today is on average better than it was 50 years ago. And therefore, because of that, you have kids who are loved and uh, well enough, they're given enough attention so that they actually don't, de- they don't need to develop a defensive personality structure to deal with that. Um, and so I would suspect because of that, we actually have uh, people with healthy self-esteems more so today and lesser rates of actual narcissistic personality. Now, I don't know that. But again, if, if we're really going to look for uh, rates of narcissistic personality, we can't look to social media because that's not narcissistic personality. That's just a change in our society. And you can not like it, and there can be problems with it. I'm not saying that social media doesn't have problems, um, but I'm, I'm guessing there's much less of a problem than people think that there is, you know, when they're older people criticizing it, but, and even younger people. Younger people adopt older people's points of view of social media, by the way. When I talk to younger people about social media, they're often quite ashamed of it. They're just like, yeah, I'm sort of addicted to my phone and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, it, it might be accurate. I don't know. The, but anyway, the point is, is that um, I, you know, in order to have narcissistic personality disorder, you have to be mistreated. And so really what you want to look at is what's the rate of mistreatment of children? And what's the rate of abandonment? What's the rate of bad parenting happening to children? And I, ha- I, I guess I could look up the research, but I haven't. But I would suspect that um, we're, doing, we're doing a bit better than we were in the past. And therefore, I would suspect less rates of narcissistic personality disorder. Now, again, I just want to say, I'm talking about personality. I'm talking about personality disorders. I'm not talking about general narcissism, you know, it, uh, or sort of colloquial slang or common understanding of what narcissism is, right? Um, it's like an, it's like the idea of happiness, right? There, there are uh, claims that like Denmark is the happiest country on the planet. And I just find those studies just be so ridiculous. I mean, how, how do you measure happiness? You're, again, you're asking people for their self-report of happiness. Uh, we don't even, I mean, just take a, just take a simple thing like the color green, no one knows if they see the color green like another person sees the color green. But we all see the color green unless you have, you know, a color blindness. So when I say something is very green, um, it's from my perspective, right? Uh, the, another example is, you know, the, the white dress versus the blue dress thing or the uh, laurel versus yanny thing. You know, our brains interpret the world. <laughs> that should not be a mystery to people. It's a bit hard to get, but we need to divorce ourselves from the idea that asking someone a question can give you an accurate answer. You know, um, people are not reliable sources of, of, of their subjective experience. Um, but really, that's all you have because there's no way to open someone's brain and see how happy they are or see how narcissistic they are. So, you know, notions of narcissism, like, I don't know, loving to look at your face, for example, um, that's not narcissistic. That's not necessarily narcissistic personality, right? As, as, as we've been established. But anyway, all right, let's go on to another topic. But again, in conclusion, I just want to say, Based on my review of the literature, we just don't know 
if we're more narcissistic than we were in the past. Even the simple question of are we more narcissistic, I don't think we have the answer to that. Um, and let alone the answer to the question, are there higher rates of narcissistic personality disorder? I mean, we can't even really understand if there's higher rates of autism now than in the past. According to the data, there's a drastic increase in autism over the past you know, 50 years. But everyone knows that that's a matter of measurement. That's a matter of how many people were actually coming forward to be assessed, how many clinicians even understood what autism was. Um, what it was, what has, uh, what has been our evolving definition of autism over time. And so, um, you know, and a lot of people are like, well, maybe it's increasing, but we definitely know the rate of increase has factors that aren't actually related to the actual rate of autism. So why would narcissistic personality disorder be any different? And again, I just want to say it's really gross when I've, when people write about younger generations as if they are more narcissistic. It's just, um, it'd be like, you know, having a lot of art. It, to me, it has the same resonance with my body as if there were a bunch of articles online claiming that African-Americans are stupid, you know? Oh, African-Americans have been found to be significantly more stupid than white people. It, it's the same felt sense I have. I mean, this is like, ugh, like, why are you attacking this group of people um, falsely, you don't know the answer to that question. Why are you so motivated to do that? Like, what what is it about you that makes you feel like you have to uh, denigrate a group of people like that? You know, just because they're younger doesn't mean they don't have feelings. And and also, you know, like, check yourself because, uh, especially clinicians, you better be sure you fucking know what you're talking about before you start spouting shit like that. Or you need to give serious caveats that, you know, there's the research has different findings. And what I find is that, you know, uh, there, there are popular researchers who are frequently cited in, in publications and, and popular media that are just flat out saying, yep, we're young people, more narcissistic. And I just feel like, man, like, how do you sleep at night? <laughs> um, Okay, so, so let's look at the measures of narcissistic personality. There are many. Uh, one is called the Pathological Narcissism Inventory. It's a 52 self-report measure. Remember, self-report. Um, there's also an online test, which is, again, self-report. It's called the Narcissistic Personality Inventory, and it's at openpsychometrics.org slash test slash MPI. So you can go there, just just Google online narcissistic personality measure and take the test. Um, some of the questions, I'll just read them. So you pick one of two answers. So every every question is like, pick, pick, from, pick which statement fits you best. Um, do you sometimes, so, so one is, sometimes I tell good stories. Another one, everyone, everybody likes to hear my stories. So you see the difference here. So if, if, you, if you say, yeah, sometimes I tell good stories and sometimes I don't. But another statement is, everyone likes to hear my stories. You know, so one's more narcissistic than the other. Another question here, I expect a great deal from other people or I like to do things for other people. So here we go again. I expect a great deal from other people or I like to do things for other people. Another one here. I will never be satisfied until I get all that I deserve. Or, I take my satisfactions as they come. 
So again, you know, narcissistic thing to think I will never be satisfied until I get all that I deserve. But again, what does that exactly mean? Just let's look at that question. It's, you know, it seems pretty shocking. It's like, man, if you say that about yourself, you're, you're pretty narcissistic. I will never be satisfied until I get all that I deserve. But you can imagine that someone interpreting that question of like, well, you know, um, I don't deserve much, but yeah, among what I deserve, I, I deserve, and I'm not going to be satisfied. You know, I'm a queer person of color and I deserve to be treated right. And so I'm never going to be satisfied until I get what I deserve. You know, so again, there's interpretation of the questions, there's culture, there's um, how you feel in the moment. And also like, how are you trying to modify the way people see you? Because this is self-report and it's pretty obvious what they're getting at. Like every single item here is obvious. It's like, oh, this one is narcissistic and this one is healthy. This, this one makes me look like a piece of shit and this one makes me look good. So, you know, you're asking this, this is the way that they often will research narcissism in among groups of people is measures like this. Uh, another one compliments embarrass me, or I like to be complimented. So compliments embarrass me, or I like to be complimented. So, this one is um, also weird because it seems obvious, like, ooh, I like to be complimented. That's a narcissistic thing. But as I was talking about earlier when we talked about different types of narcissism, there's, there's types of narcissism where people are actually uh, really uncomfortable with being complimented. They don't like being the center of attention. They're actually quite shy-seeming and reserved. And so they might say, um, actually, I don't like getting compliments. They embarrass me. And they still might suffer from narcissistic personality. Um, so there's a whole bunch of items like that. And I actually took it and guess how I scored. Uh, I'll let you think about it for a second. <laughs> I've already said that I'm uh, 5% on the spectrum, which would mean that in terms of percentile of the test, I should be at like the 60 percentile or I don't know, 70 percentile or something. Um, because, you know, if you score a f on the 50 percentile, then you're of average narcissism. Um, which I'm assuming would not be associated with the disorder. I don't know. But anyway, I scored at the 40th percentile, meaning that I'm below average on the narcissism scale, which was, you know, surprising to me. Um, maybe I answered the questions in a self-preserving kind of way. I'm not sure. Um, maybe I'm older now and have a more realistic sense of who I am and where I fit. Um, and maybe I'm not reading the results right. Maybe 40% is actually kind of high. But anyway, I'm, I'm below average narcissism, which I find to be not accurate. So I, this, um, this test, you know, uh, as with any test like this, you know, has problems. Okay. Okay, so let's talk about parenting for a second, because I'm guessing some people are a bit worried about it. There's, you know, probably some parents out there are like, well, wait, how do I make my kid not narcissistic? Um, aren't, you know, aren't we supposed to make our children feel special? Um, do, did we make a mistake in our society by focusing on self-esteem, by giving everyone a trophy? Um, you know, the answer to this is complicated. Parenting is complicated, very complicated. Um, but in general, the most important thing you need to do is make your children feel loved. Um, you can make them feel special if you want to, but really, the important thing is that they feel loved and that you give them enough of good parenting, which I'll describe in a second here. Um, 
in fact, um, if you're going to err on the side of something, you're, you're like, you know, like you, you only have so much energy to point, to put into something, make them feel loved and paid attention to. And, um, don't worry about making them feel special that, or particularly better than other people. That's something that, you know, you don't need to do. So the key is, is that, you know, when, from the time the child is born until the child is about five or six, um, you know, maybe like four ish. So particularly from the ages of like one and three, this is what I would consider to be the narcissistic window, the the developmental time uh, in which a, a major task for children is, um, understanding where they fit in the world, understanding themselves, understanding their emotions, and also understanding empathy and under and understanding other people. Um, so, if you parent kids well enough during this time, um, they they won't defensively develop a defensive structure in which they have to prop up this false self in order to cope. So, you can praise them. You know, you really should praise kids and make them feel special sometimes. But the main thing is, is um, you want to make sure that they feel loved. You know, uh, they want to. You want to make sure that they feel truly loved, mostly by your actions, not just by your words, not just by saying "I love you." It's about showing up. It's about being there for them, being interested in them, and also reflecting their emotions, noticing their emotional states, and putting them into words. Model um, for them how to handle emotions, how to to handle frustration um, in a healthy way. This is very important. And also, it's not a bad idea to go to therapy yourself because we all have blind spots and we all have parts of our personality that are difficult. And any any rough spots to our personality are going to definitely uh, affect the way that we parent our kids. And so, um, you know, so there's that. But, you know, short of that, just making sure that you're there for them, you're calm, you're a stable place upon which they can experiment with, um, you're not too invasive, but you're interested, you uh, care, you, you notice, you comment on what they're doing. And, um, you know, it's, and it's a very narcissistic experience, you know, a child. It's like, oh, look at you. Look at what you did. That's interesting. You're, um, you know... It's not about like saying, oh, my God, you're the best jumper. It's more important to say something like, oh, my God, you're having so much fun jumping. You know, there's a big difference, right? One is like, oh, my God, you're the best. You're the smartest. Another one is like, you appear to love to jump. (laughs) And that is fantastic that you enjoy jumping. What a great jumper you are. You just look like you're having so much fun. I can really tell by your by your, you know, by your face that you're having a good time. That's important because kids don't really understand the state that they're in. They're just sort of existing. And by doing this, you're helping them develop a sense of self. And by doing this, they end up being able to soothe the self and they don't have to resort to narcissism to soothe the self, if that makes any sense. The idea goes is that if you give them enough healthy attention, they don't need to grab for attention later in life. Some parents believe the opposite. It's like, well, I don't want to create a narcissistic kid, so I'm going to give the kid no narcissistic strokes, and I'm not going to pay any attention to my kid because I want them to learn that they're not going to get attention later in life. Well, the only thing this does is it creates a deficit in the child, and for the rest of their life, they're constantly grabbing pathologically for attention, but it never really making them feel any better, and they're 
pushing people away. So again, parenting is complicated and there's no way to describe how to parent well in a short amount of time. It's really a, an experience you have to have and every kid's different too. But um, those are the general things I could say. Having said that, the vast, vast majority of parents are good enough parents to avoid creating a narcissistic child. Um, that's why pathological narcissism is so rare. Um, you know, you have to you have to really screw up to create a child with narcissistic personality. You know, you have to abandon your kids. You have to have chronic severe drug use. You have to severely abuse your child in an ongoing way. So, you know, if you're not doing those things, then in all likelihood, your kid won't develop narcissistic personality. Okay, so let's finish with our last couple ideas here. Okay, just as a short little thing, I just want to say that narcissism is considered part of the dark triad. I've actually done an episode on this before. It's in the archive. The dark triad is the three personality traits that are considered to be you know, highly problematic and uh, creating the likelihood of harm to other people around them. You have uh, narcissism, psychopathy, and Machiavellianism. You know, it's considered the dark triad. Um, you know, listen to the other episodes about uh, dark triad if you want to learn more about that. When, I, when we're talking about narcissism in this sense, it's not really the same thing. Uh, I hope that makes sense. Okay, so let's talk about treatment for a second. Uh, I'm going to try to summarize it up, summarize it pretty quickly. But again, if you're not a clinician and, and if you're a clinician that's never treated personality disorders before, it might be kind of hard to know what I'm talking about. But, but anyway, um, the first thing to know about treatment is that narcissistic personality disorder clients are often seen as very difficult clients. For example, in my uh, book that I have on schema therapy, there's a quote that says, Patients with borderline and narcissistic personality disorder present the most difficulty for therapists. So people with borderline and narcissistic, they present the most difficulty for therapists. And, you know, I might agree with that on some of them. Um, the reasons that they present with a lot of difficulties is that they deny responsibility. They'll blame everyone else for their problems. They have difficulty identifying their emotions. It's not because they are resistant. They just don't, they're just immature. They don't really know their emotions very well yet. And they sometimes present as really quite arrogant and privileged, which can put off therapists. They also don't respond very well to um, CBT or directives or other kind of short-term therapies. Um, they, because they don't, they don't think that they have a problem. That's the, another problem is that, when they come into therapy, sometimes they don't really ask for help. They're more just like, they just sit down and they just complain about other people. And at no time are they like, you know, help me with this thing. Because their defensive structure makes it so that they either are really sensitive to admitting that they need help or they don't even know what they need help for. There's this lack of self. So um, they also often produce relationship ruptures with their therapist because of, you know, humiliation or slights or something, and they, they get it's narcissistic rage, they get upset at the therapist, and sometimes they end up attacking the therapist. And, um, you know, this can be very difficult for a therapist to, to cope with, naturally. And they also tend to produce a lot of countertransference. You know, they talk over you, they make you feel like shit, they belittle you, they won't let you talk, they might discount everything you say. Um, people tend to have a, therapists have a tendency to feel, to feel very, in, inadequate in when they're around them. 
And also, many therapists don't know how to treat um, narcissistic personality disorder or even how to assess for it or conceptualize it. And um, they also, a lot of therapists, frankly, don't have a elaborate or robust or adequate system of managing their countertransference, particularly when it comes to narcissistic. And as a consequence, uh, therapists, in my experience, sometimes will blame the client for all the problems. You know, they'll say, well, this client isn't ready for therapy or, you know, this client rejects everything I say This, this or this client doesn't let me talk. So, you know, I, I don't know what's going on here. And so they just get a bad taste in their mouth and then figure out a way to get rid of the client. But on the other hand, um, I don't want to paint a picture of narcissistic clients as if they're all like that, because they're not. Um, they're full human beings. They have a wide variety of different you know, modes and, and presentations, depending on the day and depending on how much they like you, depending on how much safety they feel around you. I've seen narcissistic clients who come into the first session and present a lot of regret and a lot of suffering and really want therapy. And honestly, it doesn't take much for them to realize that something is wrong um, and to take responsibility. It just takes a little bit of patience, particularly if the client is older than 35. Um, younger narcissistic clients might have a harder time, but I think older narcissistic, you know, they, they've been around the block enough times to realize that, you know, they're, they're not generally happy deep down. But having said that, yeah, they can be, some of them can be very difficult to work with. Um, but I love that challenge and it feels good to help someone who needs, you know, so much help and who has been so mistreated in their life. And with a proper model of treatment and a proper approach, the difficulties that are associated with narcissistic can be mitigated. Okay. Um, so as a caveat to, so I'm going to present my main steps here, but as a caveat to that is, um, to note that most people with narcissistic don't come in because they have narcissistic. They don't sit down and go, I have narcissistic personality disorder. Please help me. In my experience, they come in when their marriage is falling apart or when their career is falling apart and their defenses have crumbled under the weight of their so of their self-perceived failures and their despair and emptiness are being fully realized by them. And so that's when they come to therapy. They, they're just like, you know, something, something's wrong with my career right now, or, you know, my, my husband left me or my wife left me or something. And they will come in. They'll, sometimes they'll just come in and say, I need you to help me get my husband back. Or I, I need you to help me to figure out what to do with my, with my career. So that's what they'll explicitly say. But uh, behind that is deep suffering. And it takes a, a good eye to be able to detect that, you know, because some people come in and say, I lost my job, I need therapy, and they don't have narcissistic, right? So in those instances, so you need to be able to figure out the difference between that. Um, whereas with other disorders, you know, people will come in and say, I have depression, I need help. And so you'll know, or they'll say, um, my mom just died, and I'm terribly grief stricken, I need someone to talk to. So Sometimes you don't need to be a detective, but with narcissistic, it's, it often requires being a good detective. Okay, so main the, uh, step one in treating narcissistic personality disorder is managing your countertransference. This is the most important thing. Right from the start, you have to have a good way of managing your countertransference because 
Because often right from the start, you're going to start feeling a lot of feelings. You're, you're going to feel invisible sometimes. You're going to feel talked over. You're going to feel hurt. You're going to feel angry because they're not really listening to you. Um, a primary transference that the clients will have is to make sure that you know that they don't need you and you could never really help them because, you know, that's, that's their transference. Because if they, um, you know, if they keep you at a distance, then it helps them to um, keep up the grandiose self that they don't need other people and that they're perfect, which, you know, because they're terrified of the alternative. So it's sometimes really hard for them to ask for help. And so, um, you know, they'll lack eye contact sometimes and they'll, they'll look up, you know, above you and they'll just talk about their life. But, but it's not really in a way that gives you an opportunity to help them. They, they're not, they don't present vulnerability to you. They, they might even have strong messages that they're superior to you, that they think that they're better or smarter than you. They, you know, you might provide some kind of interpretation. They'll be like, yeah, I don't know if that really applies to me. Um, you, as a therapist, might have a strong countertransference of, of inferiority. But the key is, is that you have to have patience. You have to slow down. Don't, you know, you'll have urges to, to pounce and be like, oh, that's something I need to pounce on. But you need to have patience because they're so vulnerable, but they don't present that vulnerability. But they're very vulnerable. And if you push too fast, they're, it's going to hurt them too much and they're not going to want to come back. So you got to manage your countertransference. You got to know your countertransference. You got to conceptualize your countertransference. And you have to have an elaborate way of monitoring and handling it and maybe talking about it with a consultant or supervisor. Okay, so after you make sure that you establish a robust management of countertransference system that you'll do throughout your time with them, step two is building an alliance and a relationship. you got to build a strong relationship and alliance with all your clients, but particularly people with personality disorders. For example, um, empathy, listening, um, providing strategic self-disclosure, I find that this works uh, pretty well because um, like what I'll do with people with narcissistic is I'll, I'll self-disclose about my own vulnerabilities in a short strategic way. And what I'm basically doing is like, I'm, I'm telling the narcissistic person that it's okay to admit that you have a fault. It's okay to admit that you've made mistakes. And, and I do it in a way that, I'm not crumbling, you know, I'm just like, yeah, you know, um, I've made mistakes like that. You know, we're, we're all human. We, it happens to us. And so by leading the way, not only is it modeling, but it also frees up the client to not be in such a competition with you. So you need to monitor that, but you also have to be careful because with, with some people, when you self-disclose, they'll consider it some kind of indication that they can control you and manipulate you by asking you personal questions. And so you just have to, cause they're trying to gain dominance and power, some of them. And so you just have to, you just have to monitor it. Also, if it's within your style, you might want to establish yourself as an authority. It, you know, some people have different styles on this, but for some people with narcissistic, they really need to work with people who have an authority, right? And because it makes them feel like they're associated with something special. And so if you establish yourself as an authority or have some way of like signaling your prestige as a therapist somehow, that, that might help. I don't know, sort of a random little tip. But again, mostly you need to attune to their experience and make them feel like you see them and accept them. Make sure you try to elicit and notice their 
their vulnerability that's deep down. But you need to, in the beginning phases of therapy, you need to be careful about going too fast because if, if you reveal their vulnerability too fast, they'll run. Okay. So again, manage your countertransference, um, build alliance and relationship. And then step three is begin therapy is what I'm calling it. I don't, I don't know if I like this language, but this is what I came up with. So, uh, the first part of therapy is really the short-term things, which is to help people with narcissistic create a functional life. You know, how to manage their relationships, how to be reciprocal in their relationships, how to avoid destructive patterns, you know, like alcoholism and substance abuse, how to regulate their emotions, how to know their emotions, how to be mindful how to practice modesty with other people, how to notice their the way that they're pushing people away through their narcissistic ways. You might not even phrase it as, as narcissism in this phase. You might just um, phrase it as like uh, emotional regulation and, and relationship skills. Um, you really want to focus on attunement and compassion and empathy toward them, and you really want to help them to be attuned and compassionate and be empathetic towards other people. You want to reduce instances of narcissistic rage and you want to help them avoid triggers that challenge their self-esteem. Um, so these are all, it's sort of like, let's get this person stable. Let's get this person less symptomatic, right? So part two of therapy is the medium term objectives and goals is to increase insight. You want to help them to understand their their feelings, their emotions, their compulsion for excessive approval, um, understand their sensitivity to rejection and disapproval and humiliation. And you, you want to help them to not entertain their, their defenses, you know, like to notice their defense mechanisms. So this is a insight uh, phase. And then the, the long term is to provide corrective experiences. This is being a stable uh, empathetic, attuned listener for them, uh, providing safety, um, not getting triggered by your own countertransference, um, giving love, giving attachment, listening well, making sure you repair ruptures well enough, um, provide support, normalize their their feelings of inferiority and their defenses, and maybe even provide a lot of admiration. You know, they didn't get enough good admiration as children. And so maybe you have to give them more as, as an adult so that they don't need it anymore, but it's all kind of depends. You have to intuit a lot of that. So, so part three is uh, providing corrective ongoing experiences. Basically you're reparenting them. You're giving them the parenting that they should have got when they were uh, younger. So again, uh, step one is to manage your trans, your counter transference. Step two, build an alliance and a relationship um, and so you need to make sure you establish those up front and maintain them. And then, uh, as a separate kind of track is what the therapy track is. And you want to do the short term of create, you know, help them create a functional life. Uh, part two is increasing insight. So, you know, you don't want to jump on insight right away if their life is falling apart, you know? So you got to make sure that their life is stable and that they're less reactive and less prone to, problematic behaviors. That's, that's an important step. Then after that's, you know, after their life is relatively stable, then you start going to insight. And then, um, the, you know, the 
the pinnacle or the best thing you can do is long-term therapy where you're providing corrective experiences for them over time. Okay, so I thought I would end with a question that I got uh, from somebody. Someone wrote in, um, and just as a sort of an application of, of all this stuff. So this person wrote in and said, I'm wondering whether my mother would be seen as a narcissist or whether she would be seen as psychopathic. I am terrified of her. When I was five, she married a sex offender, even though she knew he was a sex offender. When I told her that he raped me, she said, why didn't you tell me during the divorce settlement so we could have gotten more money out of him? My mother took pleasure in seeing me in pain when she punished me. For example, she would tie me up and make me beg to be released. I still feel responsible for her, and I feel like I was born to meet all of her needs. She meets the DSM-5 criteria for narcissistic personality disorder, but could she also have some other comorbid pathology? I am doing my master's in psychology and have read so much, but I still don't know how to stop being scared of her. How do I manage her? Okay, so you're asking a number of questions here. But the first thing that I'll say is I'm terribly sorry that you went through this. It's awful. It's, you know, just tragic and awful. You didn't deserve any of that. And unfortunately, you're probably going to be struggling with the effects of this for the rest of your life. And that just fucking sucks. And it's unfair. And um, I'm guessing that's why you're attracted to the field of psychology is to learn more about this. And, and I really do hope that you're getting the good therapy that you deserve to heal from this and to grieve this. Um, so one question you have is, you know, uh, does she have narcissistic personality disorder? Um, you know, I'll take your, I'll take your word for it that she meets the criteria, but it's hard to know based on your description. I mean, she's certainly in some, um, spectrum of lack of empathy and, you know, you're getting your master's, which is education in our field. But as I've talked about before, getting a master's in psychology uh, unless it's really focused on personality disorders, in all likelihood, you don't really have the, the, the competence to, to accurately diagnose someone with narcissistic personality, particularly because you're probably just starting out in your career and you are her daughter. You know, like it's, it's hard to be objective as a assessor when, you're in a situation like this. So I just want you to be a little cautious about being so sure that your mother has narcissistic. Now, maybe she does, and maybe you're an expert on it because you really focused on it in grad school. But if if you haven't, I, I would just be really cautious about that. And wait until you study this and treat it and um, get supervision around it and have some successes in treating it, have some successes in assessing it over time that, and seeing the different kind of manifestations of it. So, and hopefully after listening to this episode, you'll have a better idea. You have another question as to whether or not she is comorbid for psychopathy. It's certainly possible. I mean, the, you know, uh, not having empathy for you upon being raped by a man that she married. Um, she takes pleasure in seeing you in pain when she punished you. You know, she would tie you up and make you beg to be released. This is not necessarily a narcissistic uh, trait. It, it sounds more psychopathic to me. But again, there's no way for anybody to just take a description from somebody. So one of the things that I find that people do 
is that, you know, you'll hear a story of just like my mother beat me. She tied me up. She um, raped me or whatever. And people say like, oh, well, obvious that obviously that person suffered from psychopathy. And the thing is, is like, it's certainly awful what the person did to you. But again, you really have to sit down with an expert with these disorders and uh, be fully assessed in person. And these personality disorders are impossible to diagnose from afar. They're, they're really hard. Um, the, what we can say is that if you're describing it accurately, she was doing psychopathic things and she was exhibiting a lack of empathy. But it's hard to know what exactly I would find if I actually treated her. You know, maybe she does have empathy and she does care, but she has PTSD or complex PTSD. And, and, and there were things that were happening in the, her world that were triggering her. And she was like flipping out um, or she dissociates or she has dissociative identity disorder, or she was terribly depressed and psychotic slightly around her own place in the world. She, she, maybe she saw you as the devil. I mean, there's just so many options as to why someone would exhibit this kind of behavior. I know it's tempting to look towards narcissistic and psychopathy and any social as an answer, but but anyway, there's just a lot of there's just a lot of possibilities. Um, again, just want to be clear: by the, your description, she was exhibiting lack of empathy and she was exhibiting psychopathic-like behavior. But to truly diagnose someone with these sorts of things, it, it it takes time, and you can't do it by just following a checklist. You really have to assess people. There's this notion out there that you know if you meet if you meet the hair, um, you know, there's a measure the hair measure. H-A-R-E, of psychopathy, then you have psychopathy. And it's like, you know, uh, to truly be able to know from an expert whether or not someone has these sorts of disorders, you have to sit down for a while with them, like I said. Um, the other question you have here, which is, you know, broad, which is how do I, how do I manage my mother? Because I still think about her a lot, and she's, you know, she still plagues me and this kind of thing. Um, that is a hard one. Like I said, for the rest of your life, even if she dies tomorrow, you're going to have, um, you're going to be tied to her in good and bad ways. And it's unfair to you. It's awful. Um, you know, I don't know what to say about that exactly. Um, go to therapy. That's how you can manage her. Um, if, if she's truly a monster, which it sounds like she might be, um, in my experience, there's no way to manage these people in your life. Or shall I say, one of the, I'm, I'm just going to, this is all based on when it, people ask me this question now and then, they're like, how, how do I, how do I manage this family member who has this disorder? And what I'll say is, is like, I don't have the answer to that. There's no, there's no right answer because if they were just some random person on the street, you know, the obvious answer is like, well, just tell them to fuck off and go home. You know, like, don't, don't, don't let them in your life, right? It's just, it's such an easy answer. It's like, well, just reject them, get rid of them, and don't ever look back. Well, the problem with when your mother has a disorder and has tortured you your whole life, a very easy answer would be like, well, just reject your mother, never talk to her again, and forget about her. But of course, people can't do that, or very few people can do that. And so in my experience, there's an, there's an ongoing differentiation process and an ongoing healing process that sometimes involves actually being in contact with the monster. Plus, 
the person, the mother is a monster, but the mother is also a mother. You know, the mother is the one that uh, birthed you and took care of you sometimes, and and you have a deep need for respect from her and love from her and reparations from her. And so it's not so easy just to, just to, you know, turn away and never look back. And so in my experience, um, for myself, what I do is I go to therapy for it because it's, there's a lot of healing and a lot of trauma that one goes through about this sort of thing. And then I try to develop boundaries that preserve the self, preserve me because uh, I just feel I just need to do that for myself. But I also recognize that some level of contact has to take place in order for, I don't know, growth to happen for me or to be realistic about the relationship, if that makes any sense. And so it's a complicated thing. Um, so, um, yeah. Having said that, if you you know decide that you just want to completely cut her out of your life, that's totally you know, fine. That can be, that can be a very healthy move, but sometimes that's not possible or, um, it's too, too difficult or given the healing process, not, not realistic for some people. But anyway, so let me summarize. There are many different usages, usages of the word narcissistic. You have, you know, uh, he's so full of himself, he's so vain, he's so narcissistic. Then we have, you know, we're all inherently narcissistic. That's another use. Um, I might add, like, the dark triad version of narcissism in there. Also, we have, like, children are, children, all children go through a developmental phase of narcissism. And then we have this notion of narcissistic personality or pathological narcissism. So there's a lot of different usages of of the term that, so we have to always know which one we're hearing and which one we're using. Also prevalence seems to be between about one and 2% have full blown narcissistic personality disorder. And, you know, maybe 5% have traits who, who are on the spectrum, but below the threshold in which we would diagnose with full blown narcissistic personality disorder. Also remember that it's on a spectrum um, in, in all, uh, in the, you know, we need to think of it as a spectrum, but there's a difference between, uh, self-esteem, they're related terms, but there's a difference between self-esteem and, uh, we're all narcissistic and that we're all kind of self-centered and the notion that, um, of narcissistic personality or pathological narcissistic personality. These, these are different concepts that I've talked about. Also, it's not about being spoiled. Some people will say that, you know, that some people, even clinicians will say that, you know, uh, narcissism is not the result of low self-esteem. Narcissism is the result of inflated self-esteem. And again, depends on how you want to define all this kind of stuff. But uh, there are some people who have been spoiled by their childhood and have an inflated sense of privilege and will act narcissistically, but they don't suffer from narcissistic personality disorder unless they were mistreated as children and not given a chance to develop a sense of self and are reacting defensively with a fake grandiose self in a way of distracting themselves and other people to the realities of their deep vulnerability and inferiority. So people who have just been spoiled are likely people who were actually treated well enough as children that they have an intact personality, but they've been taught something really bad that they're better than other people. And for these people, 
their empathy will win the day because they were raised in a way that was loving enough and empathic enough that they actually developed a, a good enough sense of empathy. But they have this idea that they're superior to people, right? It'd be similar to like um, white children who grew up in the South during slavery. They would consider themselves to be superior to black people, right? But, you know, they did have empathy for, for other human beings, but they were but they were being taught something really awful. And they acted that out, right? So when you're taught that you're better and superior to other people by your parents, because they're like, you're better, you're the best, you're, you know, you're smarter, you're better, you're taller, you're more beautiful, then, you know, you've been taught something that's not uh, healthy. But if you've been given enough love and attention, later on in life, your empathy will likely kick in and you'll realize, wait, I think I was taught something incorrect. <laughs> and my viewpoint is actually harming other people. And since I have empathy and since I have enough personality uh, structure to be able to reflect on myself, I think I need to rework my ideas about other people and myself. So that's another important thing to think about. Also, the key conceptualization for narcissistic personality disorder is that they, uh, people with narcissistic personality uh, spectrum have been mistreated and uh, ha- ha- weren't given the chance to develop a sense of self and therefore they can't soothe themselves. And they also reacted to the train wreck that is mistreatment by uh, swerving in the direction of narcissism as a way of coping with that train wreck. And they prop up a grandiose sense of self. They, they um, need it to be perfect. Sometimes they demand it that it be perfect. They demand others to see it. And this is what protects them from their deep sense of emptiness, inferiority, humiliation. Um, also, when we look at, I uh, just want to review the symptoms again. I need to scroll down here for a second. Okay. Um, the different symptoms, still scrolling down. I have so many pages of notes. Um, are uh, compensatory grandiosity, a lack of self, anger and hostility, difficulty with empathy, difficulty with emotions, excessive shame and inferiority, feeling entitled, relationship problems, envy of other people, lack of insight, moodiness, impatience, repetitive mistakes, perfectionism, hypochondriasis, extreme coping mechanisms, sometimes self-destructive, and a lack of, epi- lack of ethics. Narcissistic personality disorder is not what the internet is saying. Uh, fam- Alexander the Great, we cannot definitively say he has narcissistic personality disorder. William Shatner, Kanye, we just, we just can't tell because you know, we need to be able to fully assess people, which in my experience, you have to sit down with them. They have to be willing participants, and you have to uh, work with them for at least a few months. Um, you know, taking a selfie is not an indication of narcissistic personality disorder. Uh, the research uh, is spotty about all this in terms of are we becoming more narcissistic as a society? It's really hard to tell. My, my guess is, is that um, we're not. Uh, you know, if you want to say that social media is ruining our society, totally fine. But if you're going to claim that we're mo- we we suffer from more rate higher rates of narcissistic personality traits, that's that's a bit of a stretch. Um, does Obama or Trump have narcissistic personality disorder? You know, hard to tell. Um, in this episode, I've talked about you know a few of the points of 
Trump that indicates that he might be on the spectrum. But again, I can't diagnose him, and it's just, just hard to tell. Um, the causes of narcissistic personality, uh, to me, the, the main factor is childhood mistreatment. seems like there might be some genetic factors as well and some cultural factors, but, but mainly childhood mistreatment. I also talked about in this episode the differences and the overlap between narcissistic, borderline, histrionic, antisocial, and complex PTSD, and how I generally see them, as particularly um, all of them except for antisocial, as being basically the same thing, um, particularly because the treatment is the same. Countertransference is intense. Uh, relationship ruptures need to be uh, dealt with very well. You need to have a lot of attunement, a lot of alliance building of, of uh, you know, a relationship. You have, have a lot of patience. You have to go slow. You have to avoid triggering them, uh, which could be very easy to do. So you have to know what the triggers are before they tell you what they are, because if you trigger them, it could be too late and they could run. Um, I provided a, you know, a one profile at the beginning of this episode anyway of a possible uh, narcissistic personality. I talked about movies. There Will Be Blood and Talented Mr. Ripley are good examples of narcissistic personality. talked about all the different types uh, that have been proposed, but mainly in the literature they talk about two different types, which is basically the, the overt type and the covert type. The overt is the quintessential narcissistic personality, someone who's very grandiose and doesn't really care about other people's feelings. And then you have the covert person who seems to be shy and doesn't really like the attention to be on them, but they're, but they're quite perfectionistic and they're quite focused on humiliation and quite self-absorbed and, um, and they, they might lash out quietly towards people um, or to their spouses instead of um, overtly sort of making everyone know that they're narcissistic. I went over the history and talked about uh, Kohut and Kernberg and Freud um, again, talked about, are we becoming more narcissistic? Went over, uh, one measure of narcissism, talked about parenting, and then I talked about treatment. So, um, pretty sure this is the, 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 the these two episodes are two of the longest episodes I've ever made as a, um, as a, uh, if I consider this one topic, it's, uh, probably the longest set of episodes I've ever done. I did a whole bunch on evolutionary psychology a bunch of years ago that um, I think are equally epic in this way. But um, I have to tell you, I'm really quite um, satisfied with this. It feels good to comprehensively research it and think about it and conceptualize it. I, I feel like I've really furthered my understanding of it as I did this whole process. Um, you know, I feel like before I went on this journey researching this episode, I was about kind of 50% to where I am now. So I've, I've really furthered it quite a bit. And um, let me know what you think. I'm, I'm really curious what you think as patrons. Also, remember that many of you asked for this specifically as a deep dive, particularly on the, um, on the survey I sent to you all. So I'm really hoping that this scratched that itch um, and that you don't um, disagree with me too much. Nothing wrong with me being um, wrongheaded at times or mistaken or... I don't know, uh, nothing wrong with that. But I don't know, I guess I'm really curious what you guys think. And I'm really curious if uh, I'm making any sense to you. I, another question out there I'd have is, um, what about people, so after listening to, I, I don't know how long this episode is, 10 hours, um, 
After listening to this whole thing, I, I'm guessing you've been thinking about people in your life who might have narcissistic personality, or even yourself. And uh, please share with me your experiences with that. You know, like as you were listening to this episode, um, think about like what sort of discoveries you made or confirmations you had about this sort of thing. Because I think that's where my wisdom about narcissistic comes from is hearing actual stories, experiencing actual things, not looking on the internet and thinking about Kanye and selfies. All right. So you can do that by going to psychologyinseattle.com, going to the contact us, us page. That's a pretty convenient place to email me, or you can just email me at contact at psychologyinseattle.com. Okay. My God. So just to let you know, a little peek behind the curtain about my process is as I said earlier, I've been researching this topic for years just for this episode, you know, cause it was, I've been doing the podcast for 10 years. People have been asking me about narcissistic for a long time. And I always knew it was going to be a, an epic episode. I had no, I, I thought, you know, maybe three hours, no idea it was going to be 10 or 12 hours, however long these two episodes are. Um, and so this is, this is, this episode or these two episodes are the result of just so much time and effort. And then I started researching it uh, more uh, specifically to actually start recording, you know, a few months ago, been spending a lot of time on my notes and researching, looking at books, buying books, looking at um, talking to people, looking at stuff online. And then I started recording a couple weeks ago. Um, and, uh, you know, like, every day I would sort of chip away at this episode. So even though I'm talking continuously these whole two episodes, it's a bit of a deception because I am, uh, I've recorded these episodes over the span of a number of days because obviously I can't record 10 or 12 hours um, in one day, or I guess I could conceivably, but my brain would not be able to handle that. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, uh, so for instance, today it's a Sunday and I started working on this uh, when I woke up at, 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 in the morning and have been, um, chipping away on the last couple hours of this episode and it's seven o'clock right now. So, um, if you hear sort of weird tone changes, it's because of that, you know, cause it's like maybe two days later at a different time of the day when I sort of picked up on the recording. But anyway, thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself. And, you know, um, uh, we all deserve the love that we deserve because we all deserve a lot of love and we deserve a healthy amount of self-love. And if people with narcissistic personality truly love themselves, they would not be narcissistic. Take care of yourself because you deserve it. You know that you do. Thank you.